Hi, I'm John Popola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. About a decade ago, when I first started getting interested in economics at the peak of the financial crisis, 2007-2008, I came across a blog, coordinationproblem.com. And that blog, among many economists, was home to Peter Betke. Pete is a truly amazing economist, a student of the history of economic thought. You know, in this conversation with Pete, I'm going to warn you, it gets pretty geeky. The state of economics, the debates that we have today about capitalism, socialism, and these different ideas and what they mean. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Pete Betke. Professor Peter Betke, we're going to talk about the future of the economy. <laughs> um, but before we can talk about the future, we have to talk about the past. And the first past I want to hear about is how you got into economics. Why did you study? Uh, you know, why? What first got you excited about this this subject? Um, I was very fortunate. I went off to a college that. Uh, without my knowledge, I had a great uh, economics teacher and a man named Hans Senholtz, and I was not going to major in economics. I had no interest in, in uh, uh, economics, but I had to take an economics course as part of a requirement for uh, my major at the time. <clears throat> and um, I had just, uh, in a very real way, experienced the gas lines of the late 1970s in New Jersey. And I had this professor in front of me explain to me why it is that we had gas lines and and shortages, you know, of, of gasoline. And, and um, I was like totally smitten with the logic of it. And then he gave us books to read and it happened to coincide with Milton Friedman's uh, free to choose going on in the video, you know, the, the PBS series and in the book. And so all of that sort of just coalesced and within a semester I became an econ major and, you know, within two years I decided this is what I wanted to do for my life. And I owe that all to Dr. Hans Senholtz and Grove City College. Hans Senholtz was in a particular school of thought inside the economics universe, wasn't he? Yes, he was, um, he was Ludwig von Mises' first PhD in the United States. Uh, Ludwig von Mises had uh, been a professor in Vienna and then in in, um, in Geneva and had worked with many different graduate students, some of whom had become famous economists themselves, like Friedrich Hayek and Oscar Morgenstern and uh, Fritz Machlup and Gottfried Hobbler, just to name a few in the United, that, that migrated to the United States as well. And then uh, Mises sort of uh, reset up shop when he escaped Europe. Uh, at NYU um, after working at the National Bureau of Economic Research for a while. So he worked at NBER for about four years when he first came to the United States, and then he got a position at NYU. And uh, Senholtz, uh, about 10 years after that, actually, well, less than that, I guess by the time Mises went there, yeah, roughly around that. And then, and then uh, um, at that point, he became uh, Mises became his thesis advisor, and Senholtz wrote a book uh, for his doctoral thesis on uh, can Europe sort of survive, which was an examination. It's very, very 
uh, relevant to today because a lot of it has to do with what are the requirements for an economic union in Europe, uh, how, what about a common currency, um, all these kind of, you know, what's the role of, of migration patterns and whatnot. And so it's a very fascinating book when you read it back today, what they were talking about in 1956 and what we're talking about today in 2000. And, you know, 19 now. But uh, so uh, it's it's really, um, yeah, something else, actually. Now, I understand that you've uh, you did a lot of work on the um, the fall of the Soviet Union and the transition of countries that had left, you know, that were left behind, you know, I guess the aftermath, I should say, uh, places like Estonia and the Ukraine and the Baltics and Russia itself. Yeah. Um, you know, tell, you know, what got you interested in in that? Was it about the timing? <laughs> Was it just like, hey, if the wall has fallen, I'm an econ major? So now we're going to get a little bit into the to the long story. I apologize. I'll try to be quick about it, which was. Um, um, even though I was not interested in economics and I was not interested in politics in general uh, as a teenager, I um, had a fascination with the Soviet Union, um, and that came from basketball. <laughs> and the reason is, is I was a, a kid who grew up in New Jersey in a family that had a lot of history with basketball, and my, I myself was obsessed with the game of basketball. Um, you know, both playing it, but also the, its history, its strategy. It's the only books I ever read about were sports figures before I went to college. And in 1972, um, I thought there was this tremendous injustice that was done to the U.S. basketball team in which the U.S. Olympic Committee, uh, the referees intervened in a game that the U.S. had already won. Uh, you know, this is controversial um, and let the Russians uh, not only try once, but twice uh, to defeat the Americans. And on the second try, they actually beat the Americans. So the American was the first time that the American basketball team never won, uh, didn't win the gold medal. And I thought it was this grave injustice. First, it was grown men, uh, professionals in Russia playing against college kids um, because of the amateur rules at that time. And then second of all, they cheated it, cheated. So I was, it's the opposite of like the miracle story, you know, where the college kids in the hockey team in 1980 <laughs> beat the other ones. So, you know, it was a cold war and, and I'm a kid and everything like that. So I literally thought that the United States should like invest all their resources to never lose another basketball game uh, against the Soviet Union. So I had this kind of hatred of the Soviet Union, but the hatred like a sports fan would have. And so I was kind of fascinated. So then I got interested. Senholtz got me interested in economics. And then I started reading about Ludwig von Mises and, um, and the economic calculation problem of socialism. And then I also read about, you know, Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And so I had this kind of view, like this puzzlement about this system. And so I wrote a paper when I was an undergraduate on the Soviet socialist failure that was published in the local magazine there at the college. And so I went to graduate school with a very strong interest in these issues about the debates between capitalism, socialism, and the history of the Soviet Union. I uh, went to George Mason in particular to study with Don Lavoie, 
who had just finished his Ph.D. Uh, half a decade earlier at NYU writing a book about the socialist calculation debate. And so I went there to study with Don and I ended up by doing my dissertation, not on the collapse. This is all before communism collapses. I ended up by writing my dissertation on the origins of the Soviet system and uh, in particular its connections to uh, Marxist ideology and uh, uh, the economics of economic policies that follow from a consistent application of Marx and their economic consequences in terms of economic history. I I, uh, besides studying economics, I studied Russian language for many years. I never could be good at it because I'm just not naturally good at languages. Um, but I used to be able to walk around with my, you know, my, you know, uh, English to Russian dictionary and, <laughs> and sit there and puzzle around with things. And, and I could, you know, conversational Russian, I guess I could do. Um, but not really. My cousin who was fluent in Russian said she, I was the only person she ever met who could speak Russian with a New Jersey accent. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, and I ended up by being a, a fellow at the Academy of Sciences in Moscow, uh, later on. So you, so you spent time in the Soviet Union before it had f fallen. No, I only went after the Soviet Union had collapsed. Um, I have been to all the post-communist countries, uh, I believe. Well, the main ones. So, you know, uh, Czech Republic, Romania, uh, Poland, uh, Slovakia, um, you know, Serbia, so the former Yugoslavia, um, East Germany, uh, you know, when air, uh, and, and unification. But I, my traveling all took place after the fall of communism, not prior to it. Oh, okay. Um, but I was studying already. So I, uh, uh, and I had already, I had already done my dissertation when I got a chance to go to the Academy of Sciences. And, um, so that was, in fact, my second book was coming out. So my first book is on the origins of the Soviet system. And then my second book was on the last 10 years of the system. So I did the book on the first 10 years, and then I wrote a book on the last 10 years of the Soviet system. And then I was caught up writing about the post-communist period, but then also trying to figure out the basically from 1928 to 1979, basically, period, is also something that fascinated me, the workings of that system, how it operated, and the toll on uh, humanity that was brought by the communist system. It's actually been a big uh, passion of mine to sort of get people to understand that the history of the Soviet experience with communism tells us um, very – we have very serious lessons to learn from the uh, economic deprivation and the political tyranny that results because of communism. I have, as you know – um, you know, Russ and I made these rap videos with Hayek and Keynes debating macroeconomics. Yeah. I'm knee deep in, in researching a new rap video p pitting Mises against Marx in, in, and, and really trying to dig into this debate. So I mean, you really literally are the, the man on this, um, which makes it such an exciting conversation because this is, you know, that you studied under you know, one degree separate from Mises, you know, arguably, I think the most vociferous defender of capitalism and the foremost critic of Marxism. And then 
devoted so much of your studies and even traveled to post-Soviet Russia. Um, so I, 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 I guess the thing that's so interesting to me is that when you say socialism today, and we have several members of Congress now who actually call themselves socialist. Yeah. I'm not sure what they mean. And I'm not sure what anyone in 2018 or in 2019, I should say, means when they say socialist or socialism, since so few young people have any notion of the fall of the Berlin Wall. That is now distant history. Mm-hmm. So, how you know, you're an active professor at a university. What do you believe socialism as a as a concept as a term means today? And I, I, I'm gonna t- I want to start there to set the table for us going back to the past, um, and just get your take on it because you're interacting with students and um, you're kind of in, in in some respect at the forefront of hearing what young people who are interested in political economy are thinking about. So, in my in impression, um, what young people believe is um, a set of falsehoods about how the world works. Um, so they would like to have, um, you know, they're just, they're just not very informed about the trade-offs that are necessary in the world. So they actually, and they don't see systematic effects. So they don't, they don't understand that if you do this, that's going to have these effects on uh, these, the decision-making, and then that's going to have these effects. So, they believe that you could redistribute income, but actually that would be invariant with regard to the output of the people who are producing things to begin with, right? Um, and so they, in their head, they think Sweden, because they've been told by some of their professors that Sweden has been able to uh, balance uh, economic development with social justice and so in a high welfare state and things like that. And they'll say, oh, like Sweden, and they don't. You know, their professors aren't doing it and they aren't doing it. They're not going and looking like at the Economic Freedom Index and realizing that in Sweden in the 1990s, the Swedish government engaged in, you know, radical fiscal reforms to cut back on the welfare state. That Sweden, in fact, is is ranked uh, high in the Economic Freedom Index, uh, uh, you know, actually, uh, 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 you know, passing the United States on Economic Freedom Index. And um, and that it always has been like that because it has it has relatively open trade. It historically had a homogeneous. It's a small homogeneous country, and so right now there's lots of tensions in Sweden as a consequence of you know migration patterns and whatnot. And so they don't pay attention to like what the world is actually really telling them. They pay attention to what their professors have painted a nice picture for them up on the blackboard. It would be similar to you know a professor that say was of a libertarian bent that tried to say that, uh, you know, like do a Jedi mind trick on the students and say, oh, no, if you have free market laissez-faire capitalism, you would have no poverty, right? You you know, you would have no, you know, people that try to, you know, uh, uh, sell you products that aren't any good or anything like that and just wave their hand. Of course, that picture's just as as ill-informed as the picture that they're painting. The reality about markets is the feedback mechanisms that are associated that reward and penalize various different behaviors. Not that the world is perfect, but that, you know, 
uh, profit and loss, right? So businesses go in, they try, and 50% of all businesses go bankrupt in a year. So, you know, people have made, you know, there's lots of sweat and tears that involved in that. But the whole point is, is that, you know, a vibrant, dynamic economy has as much a role for the loss sector and loss side of things as it does for the profit side of things. You know, we need both profit and loss um, in order for the system to operate. And so we have to be able to study, you know, markets and their functioning, you know, warts and all, let's say. And so if we examine, you know, what socialism is, it's not just really rich societies that decide that they're going to be able to do more public services like Princeton or Berkeley, <laughs> you know, right? I mean, I think this is what you're, you know, what you see. It's like, oh, look, you know, we have lots of parks and, and free things. You know, it's all about free things. We've got lots of free things here. So let's have, you know, this and give free things. And, and so then they get frustrated, you know, about the world because they're not free things. Um, and they think that's an injustice. Can, number one being, you know, education at the moment or whatever. But the world's full of trade-offs. And, you know, of course, you could provide uh, education for free. But what would you give up in order to, to do that? Right. And, and the part of the economic way of thinking is getting you to think, uh, not in terms of absolutes, but always in terms of these trade-offs. Um, so the old economist joke in the old days of the Soviet system was um, that, uh, you know, we, people used to say things like about, uh, you know, the U.S., they'd say, oh, my God, we can send a man to the moon. How come we can't cure the common cold? And the old economist joke was because we sent a man to the moon. <laughs> right. Those resources were all allocated that. And so when Gorbachev was in power and everything was, you know, being very frustrating for them, you know, he used to say we can track Haley's Comet, but we can't produce a uh, uh, a two slice toaster. <laughs> right. You know, and so but we can track Haley's Comet. We can't. But the reason is because all those resources that were allocated towards tracking Haley's Comet couldn't be used to develop the consumer goods. Right. That were involved. And this is where, you know, Mises's criticism really comes in, because how do you weigh and uh, adjudicate the trade-offs? You need to be able to engage in rational economic calculation. And if you strip your economic system with the tools that are necessary in order to engage in rational economic calculation, then you're not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to make those trade-offs in any kind of rational sense. And so I'm getting a little too far ahead, but that's... I think that getting kids to think in terms of trade-offs is one of the hardest things. I mean, we can't get adults to do it, like, you know. And so I like to reason, think about uh, a movie. I always love this movie, uh, Big, with Tom Hanks. Oh, yeah. Many, many years ago. And remember, Tom Hanks is a, a darling at the office when he's a, when he's a grown up. They make him a, he, he artificially a grown up. And he's a darling because he has all these innovative, uh, innovative ideas about toys and and whatnot like that. And he comes up with this toy that looks kind of like a transformer, actually. And he gets all the way done with his presentation. And they ask him, well, how much is it going to cost and how much are we going to sell it for? And like, he's clueless, right? He's, you know, he's like, I don't know, I'm a kid, right? You know, because, you know, the storyline, right, if you remember, is like he's a 10-year-old kid that wishes he could be a grown-up. And so he wakes up one day and he's like 25 years old. 
but he's really only a 10 year old kid and he doesn't have any idea of the trade-offs of costs or anything like that. This is our politicians. You know, they say all these things all the time, but they're like, Tom Hanks, they're, they're just, you know, they don't realize the cost. And then when you say to them, how are you going to pay for that? They like shrug their shoulders and they say, I, I don't know. Right. And so how, how we pay for everything else, which is we borrow from China. Yes. <laughs> I think that was a recent answer given by a freshman Congress person. <laughs> okay. uh, why should I have to answer that question? We never answer that question for anything else we spend. <laughs> It's like, I, well, I, I, and I guess you have a point. It's a kind of nihilistic point. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but I, so I think that, that what socialism means to a lot of people today, uh, young kids in particular, is just the current level of material comfort that they enjoy, right? <laughs> but with more sharing and with more free stuff. So it's 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 uh you know think about like the Bernie Sanders you know campaign and the main thing was to offer more and more free stuff to kids right that was what the whole point was you know we're going to give you free education we're going to give you free this we're going to give you I I was I was in the car um during the campaign and they had on NPR they had a Republican youth a Democratic youth and even a libertarian youth Okay, because remember there was kind of a libertarian movement going on in the election until the Aleppo comment, <laughs> right? But uh, so they had all three of these on, and they were talking to Kojo Nandi, right? Is a show here in D.C., and and uh, he's asking them about what they uh, it, it can expect out of the candidates and what they think the candidates are doing, you know, wrong. So the Democratic candidate uh, uh, representative went first. And she said, I'll never forget this. She said, look, she goes, we need to agitate for parental leave, mandatory parental leave at full pay for one year for all new parents. OK. And then the, the Democratic kid, jump, uh, the Republican kid jumps in and says, yes, it's very important for the for the family that we have, you know, such policies. And even the libertarian kid was like. Yeah, that sounds kind of good. <laughs> and I almost drove off the road because I'm a parent and, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> like a year off, who's going to pay for Again, the Tom Hanks character, like who's going to pay for this in this society? But we have so much wealth and abundance here that people look around in a trillion dollar economy and they're like, well, this is a political decision, how we spend it, not an economic decision. And the key thing to keep in mind going back to what I was saying about trade-offs is they don't recognize that the way that you cut up the pie is going to determine the size, the effort and the size of the pie that gets made. And that this is not like the way I distribute this income is not invariant with respect to the way that people work to try to achieve things in the economy. And so they, they just are very, you see this in the most recent debates about the marginal tax rates um, all of this kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we can get more specific because they ought, there's there's a lot of it, I'm not going to say dishonesty, but a lot of. Um, so dishonesty is the wrong term, because mainly very sincere people who have certain judgments, but they're very they're very selective in what they'll look at. So they'll look at Venezuela. I'm not saying that the that people on the right don't do this as well. Obviously they do and we have to guard against it all the time. But the um 
they'll you know they'll look at you know an aspect of Venezuela and then they'll stop looking when it gets bad. Yeah, Venice Hugo Chavez, uh, if I recall, was really uh, you know everybody from Bernie Sanders to. Joe Stiglitz. Um, Joe Stiglitz to Jeremy Corbyn in the UK thought he 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 was the shining star of economic progress in South America and yeah and now um and now the zoos are empty because having eaten all of their pets Venezuelans have had to turn towards the zoos for food it's just, just a, it's a it's a human tra- it's a tragedy there and the tragedy of socialism. For whatever reason, I mean, we can have a variety of hypotheses that we would explore about this, but this is going to be one of your subtle difficulties, I think, in your uh, in the rap video idea is that um, after World War II, it was extremely important for a variety of interest groups uh, to make sure that the tragedy of communism was not equated with the horrors of fascism. And so as a result, you could never imagine like a popular um, artist wearing a T-shirt, you know, with Hitler's face on it. Right. But you can wear a a T-shirt and be really cool with the hammer and sickle or with, uh, you know, um, Chairman Mao. Yeah. Chairman Mao. Chairman Mao. Right. And 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 so uh, this is just part of our our culture and, and what's gone on. And it's very hard for people to rest that image. That's why. Um, you just uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, you, I know that you work with Russ on on that video, but it, in Russ's uh, po- recent podcast with Stephen Konkin on Solzhenitsyn. Uh, Konkin's also the biographer of Stalin. I highly recommend it to everyone to listen to because that and an interview he did uh, earlier in the year with a biographer of Mao uh, and talk about the, tra- the literal magnitude of the tragedy that the communist experience in the Soviet Union and in China represents uh, it's just staggering and it's hard for people to get their heads around it. So I want to try, I want to try to summarize and be as fair as I can to, you know, people who currently see themselves as, um, socialists or socialist inclined and who would, who will say, no, I don't, I, I don't believe in authoritarian yep. uh, rule. And I don't, you know, of course I don't want, uh, to, to go, I don't want Stalin. I don't want. Maduro, I don't want Mao. I, I just, and it seems to me, and like you know, to sort of recap, that the current vision for quote socialism is a society that attempts to create equality to the best of its ability by essentially transferring wealth and opportunity from the people that are most successful and to those who are most in need, which is very still, you know, uh, an echo of, of Karl Marx, but maybe without some of the other components, like the elimination of private property and, and some of these other aspects that the Soviets, is that, would you say that's a fair, I mean, if we were going to try to boil it down to something that's um, uh, like a modern definition that that would, somewhat hold true whether you're talking to a uh, an activist on a college campus or a, a member of the democratic socialists or somebody who considers themselves to be like a socialist sympathetic um, progressive 
Yeah, so let me just start by, again, uh, I have absolutely tremendous empathy with the values that are motivating a lot of this reasoning. Ultimately, what it's all about is liberty, equality, solidarity, right, kind of idea that's going on. And sort of so French, French Revolution, right? Liberty, fraternity, for liberty, fraternity, equality, equality. Yeah. And so there's something about that. Now, the content, of course, becomes important about what you mean by those terms. Right. Um, so the idea that we want to live in a world where uh, the uh, system of rules that we operate under exhibits neither dominion. So none of us are dominated by anyone else. And also that we live in a world that doesn't discriminate. So we're all treated as dignified equals. So we want a, a social system that exhibits neither discrimination nor dominion. I'm 100 percent on board with that. The difference between the economic way of thinking and a lot of other things is that once you have those goals, those ends in mind, right, uh, which is about the betterment of society or whatever, you're going to then analyze how are the means chosen going to uh, be effective with regard to achieving those ends. And in that means ends analysis, you have three logics going on. You have the logic of individual choice. You have the logic of the situation, which dictates how each of the individuals choosing interact with each other. And then you have the logic of organization. When we come to make decisions together in an organization, how is there a certain logic to all of that? And a lot of the folks who go from the high aspirations is enough. <laughs> and they don't ask the question about the means chosen to obtain the ends. They just, all they care about is, I have these high aspirations. I'm going to introduce these policies motivated by these high aspirations, but I haven't analyzed the mechanism of whether or not those policies can actually achieve those outcomes. And that's what we do as economists. So while it's true that many of the people that we would talk to today would never want to have the horrors that we've seen in these different socialist experiments come to fruition. That was also true of socialists in the 1930s in London. They believed that they had to be socialists in their economics because they were liberals in their politics. And the Great Depression and the monopoly power of uh, the interpretation of the monopolistic power uh, meant that you needed to have the state work as a bulwark against the abuse of some citizens against others. And therefore, we were going to now collectivize the means of production to be able to do this. And that's why Hayek comes along and says it's the road to serfdom. And it's written as a tragedy, right? It's, a, it's written out as a tragedy because these high aspirations generate the very opposite of what the aspirations wanted. So rather than a society of liberty, equality, and solidarity or fraternity, what you have instead is a society in which we have uh, one group dominating over another group. Uh, we have some some animals are more equal than other animals, right? And we end up by having you know an atomistic world where our civil society institutions are torn asunder and where we end up by being, you know, atomistic uh, from this, is, which is, you know, like Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. And so I think that the issue today is that just like in the 1930s, 
we uh, we have a generation of intellectuals who do not have any they're not tied into that debate that older debate so they don't think about those issues they have high-minded aspirations and they have people who were tied into that debate who who are on the other side who are are still the the tacit presuppositions in our in our culture in general lean towards the socialist side of things and so they they are at least among the intellectual elite let's say um and so they're going to hear those messages reinforced all the time and so they just think i can get these good things without getting those bad things and so just because i don't want those bad things those bad things won't happen and what the economist comes along and says just wishing it so doesn't make it so you have to have systematic incentives that are generated by the institutional structure within which you operate. And so we better study and examine the logic of choice, the logic of the situation, the logic of organization. And once we do that, it might give pause to you in your calculation of the efficacy of chosen means to realize those given ends. So I, I'm going to I want to take us back to Marx and and kind of and walk us back to the present from that beginning at some level and maybe perhaps it's even better to think about it in terms of before Marx right so you have you have this industrial revolution taking place and um, you know prior to that you've got tens of thousands of years of human misery yeah uh, of subsistence of you know the notion that child labor came about in the industrial revolution it's a it's like why did you have you had children in order to labor at yeah. some level well you also it was a common practice that you would name your kids the same first name so you would have had sons and you would have been john 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 because only one of them would have lived to adulthood I, and I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm Italian and I'm a, I'm a junior, so I can, you know, I'm, I'm part of that tradition. I, I, I named my son, John, although his middle name is Matteo and we yeah. go by that, but, um, but it, it is, so you have this, um, so I bring that up because, so you have Marx as this critic and he's looking at the world around him and he's, he's writing, would it be about a hundred years after Adam Smith? Yeah, so he he sort of becomes, you know, very well known um, in the second half of the 19th century, but he's already writing uh, like the economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844. And, you know, you have these revolutionary moments in France and whatnot in 48, and he's already commenting. So, you know, his famous books like Capital and whatnot are 1867, and that's at the kind of back end of his life. But the, uh, he's already, you know, he's already very well known by the mid uh, you know, 19th century. So yeah, about a little under a hundred years, but yeah. So, um, Adam Smith writes the wealth of nations. You've got this wave of, uh, the liberal thinkers, um, who are criticizing monarchy. They're criticizing, um, this sort of system of state monopolies. That's mercantilism yep. and, and advocating for individual liberty and freedom and free trade 
Uh, they're also abolitionists. Many of them are the early advocates for universal suffrage and women's rights. Yep. So this liberal movement, uh, this word liberal and this li the, the early liberals uh, look nothing like our, our, our political divide today. They're, they're, they're bringing together uh, freedom in an economic sense and in a personal sense and in a political sense, all under one banner of liberalism. Yeah. And then you have, so then, but then, you know, decades and decades later, you have the industrial, you have this industrial revolution, you have, and you have Marx criticizing their system. Uh, what was Marx's set of criticisms? Like just lay them out for me. What was he, what was he looking at? Because if I, if I remember this correctly, even the term capitalism is rooted in Marx, not Adam Smith. Right. So, so right. lay out the lay out the Marxist vision. Yeah, I mean Smith doesn't have the term, but um, okay. So it's important to keep in mind that Marx is a philosopher, a Hegelian philosopher. Um, he's part of the Young Hegelians, and he's. So he's not, but, you know, economics as such was not the same kind of discipline it is now, right? Um, but his, his early writings, uh, these uh, economic and philosophical manuscripts, um, this is where he lays out this idea. Now, you got to remember something, if you go back to high school and you remember when they first introduced you to, you know, Marxism or in your civics class, where I don't even know if they do that anymore, but they would talk about this thing called dialectical materialism. And it was the way Marx described the march of history, um, which was that you would have a um, basically a, uh, a thesis and then an antithesis, and then you would get a synthesis, right? And so, you know, feudalism would be the thesis and then, you know, capitalism would be the antithesis and then, you know, whatever emerges out of that or something, right? And so, and another part of this, so that's, so dialectical has this various different way in which we also talk about that. So we always have to talk about the negation of an earlier system. So when Mar Marx doesn't really write about what the future socialist world will look about, he writes about you're supposed to glean what the future of socialism would look from, from his critique of capitalism. OK, so that's so whatever capitalism is, socialism will be the opposite of it. Um, and that's his kind of uh, it's important to understand that that's going on. The other idea is he's a materialist, which means that the existing conditions or material conditions of the world will determine the ideas that get per, uh, perpetrated in that world. So what you have to do is change the material base of society and then that will end up by changing the superstructure in society so if i can so, so to make sure i'm understanding that that the, those ideas for a second so um so you have you have a situation you have a a state of affairs um and he like and in this case we'll just say he's he's observing the world around him and calling it capitalism mm -hmm. and so that's and so this dialectic is a question not of posing a utopian alternative, but sim but 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 instead scientifically examining. Yeah, so looking at it piece by piece and criticizing the way it the way he observes it to work. Right. So the utopian socialists 
like Foyer and other people who thought that what we wanted to have was kind of a return to a post-scarcity world, a, uh, you know, the, 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 the phraseology a lot of times goes from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom. And this kind of idea, you could even see it, by the way, in, in Keynes, the attractiveness of this, because remember, when you get to Keynes, he's going to argue that uh, just like, you know, uh, in many ways, um, uh, uh, what's a Henry George, right, that they believe the puzzle of modernity is that we have poverty admits plenty because we have we, we've already solved the problem of abundance. Now it's a matter of how we distribute the abundance. So Marx is looking at this industrial revolution and he believes that we've, we've overcome this problem of the, the kingdom of necessity. And so if we just could structure the uh, conditions the correct way, we could be able to move from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom. And, and, but let me, I, I, I let me just, step back for a second and, and walk through the specific points, because I think I'll start with the the two main twin ideas in Marx. The big meta ideas are that alienation and exploitation. Yeah. So lay those out. Yeah. Lay those out for me. Alienation to Marx is not that just that you kvetch because, you know, you're at a job you don't like. It's that the very nature of the capitalist arrangement, that is private property rights, separates us individuals. So we as a, we as our nature, our homo faber, man is a worker by their nature. But because we don't own the means of production, but our boss owns them for us, therefore we're hired by our boss, uh, we are separated from ourselves. We are alienated from ourselves. And so private property rights from the beginning are the alienating ability of mankind. This is what separates us from our true nature. You combine that with the idea that under the market system, you engage in production for exchange, uh, for exchange, not for direct use, right? This is production for profit rather than for direct use. It means that the owner of those means of production that you are alienated from can exploit you right meaning that they can exploit your labor value so i your you know your labor units are you know worth uh 6 but i end up by uh you know only uh being able to you know pay you 4 uh, and one of the ways I do this is by making you work longer hours in the day. And so, you know, when I extract more of the surplus from you, um, I have the power to take that from you. And so there's an, a, a Marx didn't like to use these terms, but the easiest way to understand the resonation of Marx is that he made a claim that that exploitive power of the market leads to an injustice. And that the alienation of the of the system due to private property, that means that the only way we can get rid of that alienation is if we transcend private property. And so the reason why Marx is such a unique socialist is that he didn't sort of agitate to address the exploitation directly. Right. That would be to advocate greater labor unions, to agitate for like limits on the workday, to get better rights for the workers. He called that all petty bourgeois. 
Instead, what he argued was that to really address the injustice, we had to transcend the existing uh, institutional form, which was private property rights. And so that's why his approach had to be revolutionary, because justice could only be served by transcendence, which meant the eradication of the system. He, he, it, it, to give you an example of his style of thinking, when it came to money, because a lot of people thought, oh, money's the root of all evils, so let's just abolish money. And Marx says uh, that is like trying to get rid of Catholicism by abolishing the Pope. What we need to do is abolish Catholicism, then there's no need for a Pope, right? So if I abolish private property, there'd be no need for money because there'd be no medium of exchange. We'd have production for direct use. And so this is the first part of understanding his system, because that's the way he's going to look at everything. The current system suffers from this grave injustice, and the only way that it could be addressed is through a transcendence of the existing system, so a total transformation. Well, let me. So let me. Um, let me. I want to make sure I'm understanding the root here in man's nature. So this this sense of alienation. Um. At one level, it sounds so. Uh, my, you know, uh, my understanding is, you know, John Locke, one of the early liberals, who uh, who defends private property, makes a somewhat, almost uh, similar sort of claim in the sense that he says, "Look, we own ourselves, and so when we mix, and so that's the the root of ownership is our, our ownership of our own body. I, you know, no one else can make a claim to that, yeah, lest they make me a slave of them." And so as a free person, I own myself. If I mix my efforts with material, the land, or I chop down a tree and carve it up into a boat, that boat is mine. That If I sow the land and I homestead the land, the land is mine in a sense because I've mixed myself with the item. And, I, you know, I think it's an interesting defense of... Um, of of the notion of owning things, but it does sound like Marx is tapping into a similar human, like the sense of man as a as a make humankind as like a creature that makes things or that's productive. Like, where is he getting this? This well, we are a worker, and so if I've, if somebody else is hiring me to do my work, I'm be I'm be I'm like becoming less of a human. I mean, all those ideas are are in this whole tradition of con of this conversation that's going on. I mean, a lot of these ideas. Um, are not, they're all part of what makes up the Enlightenment and the counter-Enlightenment. So, you know, that's all going on from Rousseau and the response to Voltaire and Montesquieu and then where Locke fits in and all this stuff. So, so this is all part of the thing. And, and all of these thinkers had puzzles that to this day still resonate even when we vehemently disagree uh, with some of these speakers. So like, I'm not a fan of Rousseau, um, yet Rousseau put the puzzle of living in groups very, very clear. He, he said, how can a man still be free while subject to the wills other than his own? Yet we have to live in society with others and make decisions with others, right? So this is a paradox. How can I be free while subject to wills other than my own? And that puzzle that Rousseau put for us still is something that we're wrestling with to this day. And I think there's puzzles that Marx puts to us. 
puzzles that, you know, uh, Locke puts to us, as you said, you know, Locke has the Lockean proviso. This is one of the things that can be used on either side of the political spectrum. But like in the way you were talking about, remember, it says that that you can, you know, appropriate that property as long as you, you know, take and you leave enough and as good. Right. And so there's a kind of natural limit. You can't just mix your labor with like the entire universe or whatever. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, Locke has these kind of ideas. So I think it's all part of this conversation. And then it's read through this Hegelian and the young Hegelian philosophers. But again, this might be a little too going off the rails we've got a lot of room we've got a, there's we've got a lot of rails that we can to stay on so don't worry about it i wanted to start with that because i i, I it's very important i think to understand why marxism is not is and in some sense is not bernie sanders because marx uh would consider bernie sanders to be a petty bourgeois socialist because bernie wants to reform within the existing system and so that would be like, uh, you know, trying to get rid of money, but still have Catholicism floating around. Right. As opposed to what Marx wants is to eradicate Catholicism. Then there's no need for a pope. And so he uh, he's going to uh, try to push for this 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 total revolution, um, because that's the only way that you can solve the problem of the exploitation. Now, and so that's what feeds the Soviet context, and that's what feeds a lot of these other ones. I want to get one more, um, I have one more historical sort of history of thought question, which is where does the term socialist or socialism first arise? I mean, I think that goes very far back. I don't think it's associated, you know, there's a first international, and Marx isn't necessarily the winner there. You have Bakunin and other people, but, you know, I think the term even exists prior to that. Um, and, and it has a mixed history. There's times when in the U.S., for example, people that we would now call libertarians called themselves socialists, right? They were for society. <laughs> and so, you know, and so it, 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 the 20th century has a, a very unique and definitive meaning of what socialism means. And that's collective ownership of the means of production or or and, and, and by the way, the other thing that, you know, is also difficult is what's socialist, what's communist? Because during the time of Marx, the relationship between socialism and communism is more or less like uh, synonymous. I mean, socialism is maybe the, the halfway house on the way to com full com communism, but socialism means nothing unless it's going to get you to communism anyway, right? So it's not like, oh, I could stop at socialism and be good. That would be the petty bourgeois socialists, right? Well, right. And I, I ask partly because as I'm reading through this uh, Marx's writings, he's critical of the past and of other social socialist, quote, thinkers. Right. And and he um, but that's the utopians. And that's because he do, he disagrees with them about the way. So the utopians he's going to criticize for the way they talk about socialism because it's not scientific. And then his alternative critic, you know, his alternative competitors in the international, like Bakunin, that's a criticism over strategy. That's a criticism over strategy, and um, and so that becomes, you know, because Marx was always involved in politics, like revolutionary politics. So not like, 
you know, the Democratic Party or whatever, but like these just agitating and moving for social movements. And so strategy becomes a major part of the way he does it. So I think now we can get to more concrete claims. So Marx did make very concrete claims about the operation of the economic system with that stuff in the background. So besides the exploitation of surplus value, okay, which is an extraction, capitalism extracting, the capitalist extracts the surplus value from the worker, uh, the consequences of this system are that you're going to have a um, anarchy of production because you have production for exchange rather than for direct use. Um, you're going to have a tendency towards monopoly, uh, which is an increasing concentration of capital in the hands of the fewer and the more powerful. Uh, you're going to have periodic crises because it's production for exchange, not for direct use. You're going to get what he called disproportionality. You'll have overinvestment or underconsumption kind of theories going on. And so you'll get these periodic crises. In Marx's head, those periodic crises reinforced the concentration of capital because the only the firms that were big could survive the crisis and they would gobble up all the smaller firms that couldn't survive the crisis. So they get bigger and eventually they themselves suffer from a um, uh, now this is uh, now I'm moving into other thinkers of Marx, Marx into other thinkers as well. But let's just treat it all as one, uh, because these big firms are still going to suffer from the internal contradictions of capitalism. They're going to suffer from, uh, you know, economic periodic crises. They're going to have to turn to the state for their survival. So state monopoly capitalism is a natural outgrowth of late capitalism and then war because we're going to exploit our, our current market, so we're going to have to exploit external markets. So that's going to lead to colonialism and imperialism because that's the way that the capitalist firm can stay afloat is through exploiting people from afar rather than just people internally. And so that's, the, that's his explanation of the 19th century. right? This is what he thinks is going on, and, and those are very, very specific empirical claims, right? So you should expect to see as we get more and more capitalist economy, more developed micro, uh, macro, uh, uh, more developed uh, market economy, excuse me, you should expect to see increasing concentration of capital. That is that you would have more monopolies, they would have more dominant share, there would be less firms competing. Um, okay, so now as an economist, you sit there and you scratch your chin and you say, okay, now is that what happened? Right. And it turns out, no. Right. That's not what happened. And so, you know, um, OK, uh, capitalism suffers inherent inherent, uh, you know, business cycles just by the nature of the business. And instead, you look at it and you're like, well, actually, no, the business cycle in order to be, dis you know, disruptive has to have a trigger, which is in the monetary authority. Right. Doing things. And then, you know, is it the natural outcome of capitalism to have you know, state capitalism, well, no, that's because it's not natural for capitalism to lead to monopolies, but government can grant monopolies, and therefore government is the one that creates the monopoly status, not the market then turning to government. It's the government corrupting the market. 
And then with militarization and war, of course, we live in a world where we've engaged in military adventurism. But again, that's at the root of the state, not in the root of the market. Uh, the market, in fact, is opens up. This goes you know, to your earlier point about free trade and, and the, the, what the market does is, is break down barriers to actually not have militarization. But as you know, Bastiat apocryphally said, you know, goods and services cross borders, soldiers you know, don't, but if you block goods and services crossing borders, soldiers certainly will. Um, and so the natural liberal, economic liberal position is to have entangling commercial relationships with all countries, but no political entanglements with any. And so how do you, you know, how do you compare or run the empirical race between the predictions of Marx and the aspirations of liberalism and the empirical reality of the 19th, early 20th century. And that's all what's going on in the early part of that period of time of the history right before the Russian Revolution. There, there's this uh, thing I'm, I'm struggling to understand about where Marx is coming from, which, it, uh, which is he celebrates, he seems to be celebrating a kind of... Um, it's it's uh, very rom some romantic idea that of of making things that you'll use yourself. Like okay, I'm gonna go in my backyard and I'm gonna grow my own food and I'm gonna I'm gonna push down a tree with my bare hands because I didn't make I couldn't have made a tool because how could I smelt the steel myself? So uh, there's like this naturalism of labor and the sense that like well exchange is alienating. But but isn't but then it, it, how do you how could he resolve that with this fact that well that's the way humans always did things for tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of years that's called animal level poverty that's and then we had tools and we had <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna use tools I'm good at this tool you're good at that tool. We're going to start to make different things and specialize and by focusing on the thing we we like to do and we're good at and you focus on the thing you're good at, we will trade and exchange and we'll be better off. And that's Smith, Division of Labor and Specialization. That's um, Ricardo and uh, Comparative Advantage. And then you have um, underneath that. These tools get more complicated, so instead of sewing our, our our clothes, we create looms, and now you have capital, and it's expensive to to build and buy a loom, so you've got the people that own the loom versus the people that are hired to work the loom. But this, like, if his whole structure is built on, we have all this, we have all these, we've solved this economic problem of scarcity, didn't, did, does he never confront that we solved that to the extent we solved scarcity at all or reduced it, we did it precisely by not making everything ourselves in our backyard, but by, by, but through specialization and trade. I do think it's important to keep in mind a couple things here, um, and and you know it's very important to try to do the most sympathetic and, uh, and coherent reading. Actually, I I, I think that Don Lavoy. Um, his book, Rivalry and Central Planning, you might want to consult and look at the chapter on Marx where he tries to explain like the positive side of Marx, actually. Um, and uh, that's better than David Ramsey Steele's book, 
which actually fits your title better, which is Mises versus Marx or whatever. Uh, just on that, by the way, if you go and look at um, uh, not Heinlein, but um, who is it that um, there's a there's a science fiction libertarian science fiction book from the 70s in which there's a parallel universe. And in the parallel universe, the students are protesting with signs in the street that say Mises over Marx. And one of the things that was hilarious is during the the uh, in Brazil, uh, you know, five years ago when they were having some protests, there was a group of people out there with signs that said Mises, more Mises, less Marx. <laughs> it's kind of right. Crazy. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> so it's it's it, that's that's an interesting visual for you to have. But um, one of the things to keep in mind, go back to this is why I brought this up earlier, even though I'm sure that it it's my I'm being a little incoherent. Um, and that is, is that um, Imagine what Marx has in his head that you have primitive communism and what primitive communism had. So did you ever see the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy? Oh, I think I did, but I think it was a long time ago. So, you know, it's it's set with these this um, Aber this uh, African tribe. It's very it's, it, right off the bat. I'm remembering this is a real this is it's a real great 2019 movie. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And and you oh, know a, a, a coke bottle comes down you know from an airplane above, and now for the first time ever they've been introduced. They first see all the benefits of the tools, like what you were just talking about, which is you know they can now uh, chop up their their uh, corn you know faster. They can do this. They, in weapons, they can hit each other and hurt each other much faster. But what happens is there's only one of the bottles. And so then everyone starts, you know, vying for it and you get competition for the first time. Because before that, of course, there was no scarcity. There was no competition, blah, blah, blah. And so the guy who's the leader keeps on trying to throw the bottle back to the sky because he doesn't know anything from an airplane and it keeps on hitting him in the head, you know? So the gods must be crazy because they gave him this great thing, but then it turned into destroying the society. So keep that in the back of the mind. That's a tacit presupposition that that artist had, which is very marked. So in primitive communism, what you had was you had tremendous social relations. No one fought. They got, again, you know, I'll come back to this as an empirical claim, but this is the vision. Under primitive communism, you have these, these, this cohesive society, you have great social relations, but what don't you have? You don't have advanced economics. So the economic material conditions are terrible. They live nasty, brutish, and short because it's like, you know, they're barely getting by, but they're doing it at least in, in a communal way. 19th century liberalism, what does that have? That has tremendous, read in the Communist Manifesto, uh, Marx and Engels have this like, a uh, like beautiful description of what the bourgeoisie have been able to do right. in terms of raising the material productivity of mankind. Like just, it's like unbelievable. If, 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 if I wrote it, I'd be accused of being like a romantic or something. And so they lay all this out, but what's the problem is that modern liberalism or the modern capitalist society has terrible social relations. Well, antithesis, right? Thesis, antithesis synthesis so what's the future going to hold good social relations and good economics and that's why to marx he has to evolve out of advanced stages of capitalism otherwise if you're not in that capitalist stage when you try to advance you could get stuck in what he called oriental despotism right you get stuck that's why the march of history has to go in a certain way and i think that's very vital to get the picture right 
because he's trying to see how those good social relations could be combined with the advanced material output. So his proposal is not to have us hug a tree, right? His proposal is not to have us get back to uh, you know, le- having less. So he, so he wouldn't have been enamored with Avatar. No, uh, <laughs> no, no. Uh, you know, there's because because that that sense of um of uh, that simpler time, the, the like the noble savage, the primitive uh, kumbaya society is like this Rousseau thing that still resonates today. I mean, it com- you know you see it in movies all the time, like Avatar, where you have these sort of peaceful, perfect tribes, tribal societies. Who only get destroyed by the evil capitalist. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it's like, I, there's, it, I, I don't think the history of human conflict bears any resemblance to this sort of romantic vision. So what's, isn't the, isn't the precious metal in that story called unobtainium? It's, it's probably I, it's look, something like that. Look it up. I think it is unobtainium. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, this is why, for example, McCloskey... In the very first volume of the Bourgeois Trilogy, um, goes at great length to try to show that life in these earlier times was not very pleasant. And this is going back to our earlier discussion about modern day kids or whatever. This is one of the things that's most frustrating when you think about people talking about um, globalization and whatnot. Um, just the just two years ago was the first time in human history that less than 10% of the world's population lived on less than $2 a day. You know, if you just go back like 30 years ago, you know, when I when I was still in college, right? We're talking about like 30% of the world's population was living on less than $2 a day. And so what's happened over the la- during this period of this great globalization, this opening up the post-communist, post-imperialist stage, you know, what drove that? The opening up of China, the opening up of India, of course, right? That's a large part of the numbers, but also tremendous developments in Africa and whatnot. Not perfect, by the way, by any stretch of the imagination. Again, no one's sitting there saying Jedi mind tricked. Everything is the most beautiful thing that ever happened in the world. World is, is has lots of ugly features to it, and we have to continually be vigilant and work at it and all these things like that. But the reality is, is that globalization and the opening up of markets has delivered people from abject poverty, you know, to a new possibility of living longer and more flourishing lives than they could have before. And that was because of the advent of trade and expansion, like what you're talking about, Adam Smith, extensive form of division of labor, expansion of trade, the greater possibilities, greater increase in the productive capacity of mankind. All of that stuff comes, you know, Marx is looking at that and saying, man, that process is haphazard. You know, these guys, it's going on behind the backs of the people. Uh, That's that whole invisible hand BS, you know. And what I'm going to do is that invisible hand, it might work, but boy, it's jagged. It's terrible. What we're going to do is we're going to bring that out in front of you, not going on behind your backs. We're going to subject that to scientific, you know, control, and we are going to rationalize production. And so that term, rationalized production, that's Marx's you know, analysis, that's why Mises, you know, this is, you have to understand the evolution of these things, right? That's why Mises puts such a, an emphasis on the idea of rational economic calculation, because the opponents were saying they were going to rationalize production. 
And so what Mises is saying, you can't do that if you don't have the means to engage in rational economic calculation. That's the linchpin of your argument. And you can't do that without markets. And you're not going to have markets if you don't have private property rights. And so the very means that you've chosen is going to make your achievement of those ends, get ready, impossible. <laughs> not just difficult or impractical or whatever. It's that you're not going to be able to do it because you're missing the very issue that you need to be able to achieve that. So before we start to move into Mises, I, I want to um, – does Marx have no sense – or no, um, does he not engage this sense that uh, a person can start something without a bunch of machines? So, you know, there's merchants, there's traders, there's, you know, at some level, if, if, you're, if you're a guy at the side of the road selling a bunch of Ozark water bottles on a hot day, are you a worker or a capitalist? I mean, you kind of you you saved some money to buy the water. You took a, the water's your capital. You're out there working, but you're also a cap. Like so, uh, he it's it's a very specific. He, he he's addressing what seems like one organizational form, which is there is big companies with owners, and then there's and that's a small group of people, and then there's this mass of workers. And it's like never the two shall meet. Does he? Well, so remember, he's talking about industrial material production. So he's mainly looking at factories, right? So it's the factory system that the industrial revolution, the giant, you know, machines and cogs and 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 we are the cogs in the wheel. So giant machine and we're the cogs. Individuals are the cogs except for the owners. But, let you know, try to be, you know, a little bit more sympathetic about what's going on there is that um, so Marx is looking is, is living through the, 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 the industrial revolution and the, the the movements towards the city. So there's huge migration from the country to the city. You have more dense populations. People are living on top of each other. Um, so now you have the, the conditions of the working class uh, within the cities. That's Engels' uh, own research is on that. And so – but if, but if you read the German ideology, right? So if we look at the German ideology, what Marx argues in there um, is that when we overcome scarcity, uh, we'll be able to overcome the division of labor. Now, what he doesn't mean is that we won't have a division of labor. Of course we will. But what we won't have is our specialized roles in the division of labor because we'll be truly, truly unalienated, which means that we'll be our true selves and we'll be able to overcome the previous constraints on our um, on our nature. And as a result, if you read the German ideology, he uses a example of a, uh, a poet, um, I think a fisherman. Um, I, I can't remember the exact ones right now, but it's like you'd, you'd be a poet, you could be a fisherman, you could be like a cattle herder or whatever. And the s issue is, is that in the future, when you overcome scarcity, you could be any one of those without becoming anyone. And that's important because that's why Marx doesn't see a problem with the planning bureau becoming abusive of their power because today John Popola would be the central planner 
But tomorrow, Pete Betke will be a central planner. And the day after that, someone else will be the central planner. And so it doesn't – there's no permanent bureaucracy that would end up by ruling over all of us. And that's because we've overcome scarcity, which means we can overcome the division of labor. But division of labor meaning permanent roles in division of labor. So, or, so, or spe- I guess like kind of specialization in a sense. So, yes. Yeah, so you would have division of labor, but not specialization, I guess, is a good way to think about it. Yeah. So I, there's something interesting there because um, you know, so I've spent, I, 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 uh, I'm a filmmaker and, 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 and so my, um, I'm watching all the world around me, my tools and everything become in a sense dematerialized. So you've got, you don't need a lot of capital to do this work. Um, you just need a, you just need an iPhone, right? If you got an iPhone, you got a camera, you got a distribution outlet, you got all of it. Anybody can be a filmmaker now. And at some level, you, you've also now got um, 3D printing. So now anyone can be a manufacturer. And is he? Is there a interesting futurism in that vision? I mean, it, you you can kind of take where we are today in 2019 and some of the technologies we have and imagine. Um, and I know, like Star Trek is kind of the best vision of socialism anyone's ever put on the screen, <laughs> because they because they had the replicator, so you could just say computer, Earl Grey tea, right. hot, yeah, yeah. and out it comes, and and so we've essentially offloaded all of the specialization need to the computer and to this machine that can essentially uh, suck atoms out of the out of the universe and rearrange them on the fly into whatever I want. So computer, make me a Rolls Royce. Got it. Boom. Done. I don't need to specialize in that. Nobody else needs to know how to build a carburetor. I can just, we can all be just humans. If I want to be a poet today, I, I can do that. If I want to be an artist tomorrow, if I want to be a writer the next day, all the material needs are met by the replicator. Is he... Is that the logic of his post-scarcity world? Is that kind of what you're laying out? Because, I mean, that's kind of the most, that's pretty, I mean, it's very, uh, it's a very futuristic leap, but he's he's such a big thinker. I could imagine maybe that was kind of where he was headed. Is that, is that it? Is that what he's talking about? I mean, maybe in that respect, maybe he'll end up being kind of right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, if uh, this is part of the argument that people make about robots and stuff, right? Exactly what you're talking about. Imagine that we have a Kurzweiling, you know, Kurzweil uh, kind of singularity moment, right? What's going to happen is the growth rate will just spike up like this and all of our problems. Uh, our problem will be what the hell we do with ourselves, Right. Um, because we'll just have everything available for us. Um, but again, note that that is a, uh, I still think that you're going to have a problem of, uh, I'm an economist. So I still think that we live in a world of scarcity because scarcity is not having to do scarcity is not the same thing as, uh, enrichment, right? It's a logical concept. You only have so much time, you know, in a day, you can't do three things at once, right? You, uh, uh, need to, um, uh, recognize that the, you you know you face these trade-offs or whatever, and I also think that you're going to have to have people who figure out how they're going to help you know take care of the robots. And you know, uh, as one of my friends say, this is kind of a little off-color, but do the robots poop? 
right? I mean, are they like real agents or are they just like these things that are out there? So they're like our cell phones now. They're not really humans. They're not really agents that are doing anything. We just have this overestimation of what they're going to be able to achieve. Right. You still have the, you still have entropy. You still have physics. You have things that, you know, it's a, yes, unless, unless, unless we go into like the singularity and we're working on some kind of atomic time and an entire lifetime happens in the blink of an eye inside a computer or something. Right. And so part of the whole thing with, with Star Trek is of course they cover their bases and they have all this stuff. Plus it's just, you know, in a certain dimensional space. Right. And so there you look for other things to highlight, to understand the human dimensions. Like, so for example, in the, the Picard, editions of the things when you know deanna troy ends up by not being able to turn off her empath skills right and then what happens she's <laughs> overwhelmed with empaths you know uh the feelings and she can't function right and because she has to be able to turn them off at a mar on the margin otherwise she would be overwhelmed and so you think about that that's kind of you know an interesting dilemma that you would face but anyway go back to your main point so you have this replicator machine or you have some other things. This is actually the socialist idea, right, is that you would rationalize production. You'd rationalize production to such an extent that the system would reproduce itself over and over again and more and more rational and more and more stuff, you know, being taken care of. And as a result, because we are beyond scarcity, we've now transformed the material base, right, and therefore us as our nature – would not be as so we're not going to face the same kind of incentives effects right because we're not going to and so therefore marx didn't think socialism would have an incentive problem right because uh we'll be we'll be it's the socialist man we'll yes, be a new new, new kind of person and that so that's a kind of an interesting idea of why mises now let me get to mises again why mises there's a twofold reason why mises focused on calculation Make it threefold, maybe. Okay, uh, one of them, as I mentioned already, is that the goal of socialism was rationalization of production. So Mises wanted to show that the means chosen could not achieve that end because they couldn't engage in the very rationalization that Marx wanted them to engage in because you've it, you've eliminated the institutions that allow rational calculation to take place. The second thing is that Mises was a strict Weberian. So unlike other critics of socialism uh, through the ages, including Ayn Rand, um, who criticized socialism for moral reasons, Mises never did that. He just stuck to the strict means-ends analysis. Even though despite when you read him, you realize, you know, this is a guy who doesn't particularly like socialism, right? But it's... I mean, it's, it's, it's what makes him such a great counter character to Marx because they're both these fiery polemicists in a lot yes, of ways. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you know, his analysis of socialism, he keeps on insisting, is value free. And if you actually read what he says, the argument is it is value free. It's just a means ends analysis, which he gets from Weber as the way in which social scientists have to talk to each other. And so therefore he couldn't uh, start talking about the incentive effects because that would have affected also the – so he's not going to talk about the morality, and he's not going to emphasize the incentive effects because at that time, his opponents in economics thought bringing up incentive arguments brought up motivations. So you're saying that the planner is not motivated to do the best for society but motivated only to do the best for themselves. 
And so Mises, like Hayek, which is different from public choice, but they said, no, 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 no. Let's assume that the planner wants to do the best for society. We'll just assume that for right now. Or the state manager will want to do the best for the plan, for the society. The question is, how do they know what the best thing to do is? Rather than why should they do that? Why shouldn't they do, you know, so like in the in real existing socialist societies, I'm a state planner. Part of my question is not how do I know how to make things better for society? Part of it is how the hell do I make myself better off with the power that I've been entrusted with? Right. But that's not the criticism Mises and Hayek ever give. Uh, their criticism is that the planner could be Mother Teresa, but she doesn't know how to actually do what she wants to do because we've taken that set of informational signals away from her. And so I think that's an important part of understanding the criticism of socialism and socialism in practice. Yeah. So um, the uh, I want to spend a lot of time really understanding the, the uh, you know, talking about the calculation debate in terms that maybe somebody who's coming to this conversation totally cold can 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 handle because it's it's uh it's rich and it's difficult there's a a couple other parts of marx i want to make sure we touch on before we do that um so one of them is to come all the way back to the so you said you know some of the two of the backdrops of marx's analysis is exploitation and alienation well exploitation is so you said is based on this idea that i work and then my boss charges more than he for the for the product than to the customer than he pays me and so there's a surplus this profit and it's it's a it's an exploitative use of my labor that that is that rests on this sense of a measurement of of value in terms of like labor units this labor theory of value that things cost what they cost because of the amount of effort put in like right, right? is that is that correct no uh-huh. so talk to me about how marx rests on this labor theory of value which was the pre mises pre menger you know adam smith did as well the classical economists all were labor theorists at some level and what happens to any what happens to marx marx isn't before we even get to the calculation problem the making decisions in a complex world problem what happens to the marxist economics when a different version of value comes on the scene and becomes the dominant way of thinking about things which is not which is not hey i go it's how much effort i put into it but it's no it's how much i how much people value it subjectively and how much how scarce it is so supply and demand um not i don't care if you spent i don't care if you spent 20 hours making that mud pie in your backyard i don't want it so it's worth nothing um so there's two issues before subjectivism comes into the to the play so the subjectivism aspect is huge because um, this solves a diamond water paradox, uh, which is that, you know, diamond was more value, you know, in the market, diamond is more valued than water, but water is essential for human survival. And so what the economists needed to do was um, explain why it is that water is less valued on the market than diamonds. And the way they did was they relied on the issue of 
in this case, marginal analysis, that we don't consider all the diamonds in the world versus all the water in the world. We consider on the margin the next unit of a diamond versus the next unit of water. And since water is relatively more abundant, the next unit of water is less expensive to us than the next unit of a diamond, less scarce and less precious. So that's a, the, the marginalism of the marginal revolution. That was an important part of criticizing Marxism because Marx didn't talk in those margins terms. And then the subjectivism, which is the point that you just made, which is that the value of something is in the value as perceived by the the uh, the pursuer, right? Uh, you know, it's in it's it's the subjective value that I have in its use. And in its exchange value, not in some objective properties of it itself. But going back further, Marx was already in trouble because – and all labor theory of values were in trouble because of the heterogeneity of labor. Uh, you know, My labor units to try to make a film are a lot different from your labor units to make a film. And so just by looking at the number of hours that each of us put – in trying to make a film doesn't mean that we've made the same film or that we've made the same value, right? Yeah, I mean, an hour of a doc, an hour of a surgeon versus an hour of a janitor, if what you need is a heart transplant, is not the same value. Right, and so this is the, the heterogeneity um, aspects of labor. And then Bambavrik, uh, Mises' teacher, um, he wrote the most famous criticism of Marxism prior to you know, Mises's calculation stuff. And it's called in a book called uh, Karl Marx and the end of his system or the close of his system. And what he identified was this issue of what they called the transformation problem, which is the logical inconsistency between uh, Marx's analysis of basically exchange and commodity production in volume one and the way in which he saw the final good prices determined in profit and losses for the firms in volume three. So, you know, there's this contradiction between how do I go from the values here to the prices over here? And that's all economics has to explain this transformation, right? <clears throat> this is, you know, to go back to your Menger point, this is how, how is it that the value of a pig gets determined by the ham sandwich that it satisfies in the market? Right. That's a transformation that has to take place. You know, we, I raise pigs. I have hogs on my farm. I take care of them. I maintain them. And then what happens is I, I feed them up. I get them fat and then I slaughter them. And then that gives me a ham sandwich. How about if everyone decides that they no longer want to eat ham? What does that do to the value of the pig back on the thing? That's what the market system does all the time. That's the relative price adjustments and everything. And so you ha that's how economists explain that by the what they call the imputation of value. Right. That the value of the higher order goods is imputed from the consumer goods by which they satisfy. So Marx didn't have that. And so he had this transformation problem. And so economists were like, OK, so that's a fundamental problem in your system. You're not able to do that. Your solution to this is to have, you know, this kind of weird sharing that's going on by the, the capitalist at the last minute. So it's like a very – the way he solves it is to – at the very last minute to, to change the underlying behavioral assumptions of the economists – of the economic actors. So now all of a sudden the capitalists are getting together and sharing the outcome rather than being selfish. I got, I'm, I got lost there a little bit. What do you mean – like what – what was that? He has capitalist communism, <laughs> right? Which is that the, the 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 capitalist firms all get together after they've exploited all the profits, but then they share it with each other. 
rather than the idea that they would each try to grab as much as they could from each other. And so that's the only way that he can able to square uh, these things out. And so this problem, you can look it up. This problem is a hundred year old problem that Marxists are still running around trying to figure out the transformation problem. How do you go from the values to the final out, uh, output prices, you know, that are, that are going on. And, and so with that, and then with the exploitation doctrine and the development of the marginal productivity of factor pricing, uh, what happened was by the end of the 19th century... So just explain that for a sec. So that workers get paid their marginal product of their contribution. So if my wage um, is dictated to a large extent but you know, what I can get from my employer, but also what I could get from another employer. And so if this employer uh, is underpaying me, then I can go to another employer who will pay me more. And if I, my productivity is greater than my wage, I give value to that other employer, right? And so in order to avoid losing me in the productivity and my productivity, this person is going to be forced to pay. Look, one way to think about this is every worker would like to get paid a million dollars a minute and every boss would like to pay their employer one cent a minute. How do they ever figure out to neither get a million dollars a minute or one cent a minute, right? And the way they get that is through the exchange process and the bargaining that goes on and the, and the relationship to alternative offers. So if my boss tries to underpay me, I'm going to have an alternative offer, which will then attract me to that service. If I try to demand that I get paid more than my than than what I'm worth, then every moment that I'm working, I'm costing the firm money, so they're going to get rid of me. And so the interaction of that, like the interaction with all supply and demand activities, ends up by giving us a range within which we, you know, our our wage rate is determined. All right. And that wage is going to tend towards the marginal productivity that I provide to the firm. So uh, in terms of when we think about how do we how does someone come to have earn more money? And then how do we think about what the world what what a society needs to be doing at, so that people make more money, which I think is a the sort of political concern, right? It's like, well, there's people that are not making enough money. Mm -hmm. So how are we going to do that? And so the, the seems like, seems like what Marx is saying, Mark, the Marxist approach, much like even the modern discussions of the minimum wage, which I believe he even talks about in the communist manifesto that says, well, this is just a, this, it's purely a bargaining problem. There's not, the workers don't have any power to bargain, uh, to, to get, the higher wage. Right. But see how that relates back to the monopoly question. So, yeah. So then on the other, so, so that's an empirical question. And then you have this question of, okay, well, uh, the, you know, uh, how, why is it in a, how is, how is it that we observe people making more money without that? I mean, I, um, I, I often think about, you know, I, I worked in a big, you know, big company at Viacom in, in New York city. And, um, I had, I had, I had, I was a manager at one point and I actually had, I advocated for one of my team members to get a raise and, uh, and they got it. And this was, it was a non-union shop and it was this young, you know, young woman who was really talented and doing great. And, um, and, uh, and at the, at the core of that was, 
Look at their output. They're they're you know they're getting offers from other they're getting offers from other networks. You know we're 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 not you know we're just going to lose her and she's going to take all this incredible capability and experience as a producer and and go somewhere else and 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 you know mighty Viacom in terms of internally said well yeah yeah clearly and she got a raise and and it was on the basis not of my negotiating or her power because neither of us had that much to 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 put forward relative to Viacom. But, you know, at least internally, there was a sense from the people that, that approved it that, oh, I can see that. Yeah, I there the outputs there like we if we had to replace this person, what this person is doing with somebody else, um, you know, that 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 it is it is better for us to keep this person here and happy and increase their pay and it was it wasn't a function of some uh, struggle it was a it was a, it was an acknowledgement of something that was real and tangible not just a who's the better negotiator yeah so the the economist way that they talk about this is workers don't compete with management workers compete with other workers right so we're competing with other workers in the marketplace our marginal productivity matters we get bid by the by the by the managers to go work for them. If we produce, if we're better at producing X than uh, the other person, we're going to be getting the job, right? And, you know, Senholtz, going back to Senholtz, one of the things he, he didn't, he mainly, you know, just talked economics, but he gave a couple practical advices over the years. You know, one of them was investments. He always used to say, you know, bears make money, bulls make money, pigs get slaughtered, you know? <laughs> so that was like a phrase he would tell us. But um, another one that he told us was always make sure that your marginal productivity exceeds your wage and you'll always have a job. Whenever you have your wage exceed your marginal productivity, you'll end up being unemployed. And so that meant you had to think about what are the things that raise my marginal productivity? Education, investment on the on the job skills, learning new, you know, uh, technologies when they come about, adaptability, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, the, the point here is that economists developed this theory of factor pricing. So it's not only for labor, but also for the machines that they use and everything like that. And that and that interaction increases the, somebody's ability. So it's not just it's not just, oh, I'm really smart and I'm really educated. It's, oh, I know how to use this yeah. machine so I can make I can make 10 10 of one, 10 of a thing instead of one of a thing and going all the way back to Adam Smith's, uh, you know, pin factory. Right. I mean, so, yeah. So the, the more you have specialization, the more you have machines, the more you have advantage, you know, Smith uses the example of this boy who wants to play ball and, you know, with the kids, you know, not, I would tell you, we call it catch. I have no idea what they were playing then. Um, but they were playing some kind of game and the boy worked in the factory, but he wanted to find a labor-saving device so he could have more time to play with his friends. So he figured out an innovation. So the machine did what he normally would have done automatically, right? This kind of innovation. Um, and so the machine now made his productivity yields far greater than what he was before. And so I, I, I you know, you look at this, and, and so you, you, you look at this. So once economists had this marginal productivity theory of factor pricing, that meant that the exploitation doctrine of Marx goes away. Um, his his uh, theory of value um, is substituted or, or traded off to become now the subjectivist and marginalist revolution in economics. And then the empirical claims that he has about business cycles, about monopolization and everything else, that goes away. 
And so by, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why you do not have a large number of practicing economists who are avowed Marxists uh, since the, the 20th in the 20th century and, and now is precisely because Marx was roundly defeated in these economic debates or disputes where Marx then Marxism went was into sociology, into history, uh, primarily into anthropology, especially. And in those fields, there there is almost uh, not always, but there is a large amount of allergic reaction to the systematic analysis of the logic of choice, the logic of a situation and the logic of organization. And there's a large part of um, intentions equal results. So if I intend to do good, then that must mean that I did good without an examination of the empirical uh, examination of whether or not in reality we actually achieved any good. And that's the real problem is because that means that what Marxism has become is not part of a scientific program which could be critically examined by logic and evidence, but instead an aesthetic. And this goes back to your earlier question, which is the reason why socialism is so attractive to young people today is because they find the aesthetic of socialism attractive. And what do you mean by aesthetic? So the longing for a total revolution which would transcend the existing power structures is very, very attractive to young people. Imagine a world where, you know, there's there's no bullies, there's no discrimination, there's no domination. Um, you know, and 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 you know, we if we vote for uh, you know, think about it this way. If we vote for uh, a twenty hour, a twenty dollar an hour minimum wage, we get twenty dollar on minimum wage, and there's no, you know, companies don't shift to uh, you know kiosks at McDonald's, right? They just pay us our twenty dollars, and everything is great. Um, there's no reaction effect, and they don't pass it on to their customers either. They just the uh, owners and the shareholders just take take a haircut. Yeah, because they they're so rich anyway, they can afford it. But the rest of us, you know, we can't. So uh, let's do that. And I'm not even sure that they would do that because a lot of times, you know, not to be a jerk here, but, you know, a lot of times the very people that are the loudest are the people who are the sons and daughters of the CEOs, <laughs> you know, that have never really had to work. In my experience, the harder that you have to yourself work for things, the less likely you want free things. I want to. Yes, yeah, so I want to take some. I want to try to break down with you this argument this 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 argument of social of calculation and how because this was the thing that for me um, uh, for whatever reason just resonated in in this sort of deep like the scales falling from my eyes aha moment and and so let me let me take a crack at it and 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 jump in and flesh it out for me. So the way I, I think about the way I understand it is, is that you have Mark saying we have the knowledge in our time to organize society along a kind of rational scientific 
basis. We can, we look, we know how to make steel. We know how to create plenty of food. And so now we need to basically lay that blueprint out, treat all of society as, as, as kind of the tools to create, um, to create plenty and design it the way, you know, the way like a, a person that's going to do a business plan maps out their five-year plan. Only it's only all of society is at your disposal to do it. And Mises, so explain for me, is that, is that a fair a statement of the Marxian social, social scientific, scientific socialism? Uh, I think the easiest, yes, in, in, in essence, the easiest way to understand it is that the invisible hand is a haphazard process which generates or tends to generate, except in the face of monopoly, in the face of periodic crises, uh, this kind of coordination. And we can do better by abolishing production for exchange and the market system and instead have production for direct use and um, and and you know forego this whole haphazard process and rationalize production and we'll end up by getting the advanced material production without the costs of generating that advanced material production so we'll have a, a chicken in every pot you know planned from planned from the capital so the key issue for mises is that you have to find some mechanism to sort between all the technologically feasible ways to achieve some goal and uh, from the, uh, from uh, and out of them find which ones are economically viable so to give you an example many years ago when i was a graduate student at george mason university so i, I was a student at george mason university until 1988 and then I taught at other universities until 1998, and then I came back to teach at GMU, and I've been there ever since. So I'm kind of a lifer at GMU, but I did have a 10-year period when I wasn't there and never thought I would ever come back there. But when I started teaching at, at, as a graduate student, they put me in to teach. Uh, George Mason, when I showed up in 1984, was roughly around 9,000, 10,000 students. And uh, when I left, it was almost 20,000 students. So that's an amazing amount of growth, all right, in a short period of time. And uh, George Mason has a lot of land. It's now a lot of buildings on the land, but at the time, not as much. So I had a lot of land, uh, did not have much housing. So everyone commuted to the campus and had these old buildings and these trailers. I used to teach in a trailer because – there were temporary buildings to, uh, to accommodate all these growing numbers of students. So one of the things that one a Martian who came and saw George Mason would notice is that kids would circle and circle and circle with their cars because the parking lots were far removed from where the classes were, and they wanted to get a parking spot as close to the campus as they could. At the same time, they could have parked farther out and gotten, you know, a parking spot without having to circle. And so they would be late to class. They might skip a class, you know, all these kind of things like that. So one of the questions I used to ask the students is I'd say, using the price system and only the price system, how could you solve the parking problem at George Mason University overnight? And the simple idea was is to charge high prices for the spots that are close to the campus and low prices for the spots you know, farther away. 
And then the kids would park in the lower cost prices. The faculty would park in the higher cost, you know, uh, uh, cost places. And we would allocate the parking lot, parking spots uh, in to the highest valued user. Right. That's the basic idea. And you should have heard the answers that I got. Uh, you know, students would say things like, well, what we should do is the government should mandate that cars only have two wheels. And then we could double the number size of the parking lot uh, spots. Uh, we should set up a um, a helicopter, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, drop off part, and then have parking back out on Gra Braddock Road down near 495, and then you take the helicopter to campus and do all the things. They were already getting good at, at writing modern legislation, in other words. Right. All of those answers were one technologically feasible. And two, would have solved the problem, right, given the numbers and everything like that, but they were economically astronomical to do. And the reason how you know that, right, is because you engage in the process of economic calculation. It sorts out from among the numerous array of technologically feasible projects, what are the most economically vi viable. The, the example of Mises' time was railroad tracks. You could build railroad tracks out of platinum, or you could build them out of steel. And there's were there were actual arguments for technological superiority of building them out of platinum. However, platinum had alternative uses in the market, which meant that it was prohibitively expensive to build railroad tracks. Now, how do I know it's prohibitively expensive? Well, because I just told you the market price for platinum is high because of alternative uses. Oh, okay. That means I need to have markets in order to know whether or not platinum would be better to be used in railroad tracks or to be used in some other input into some other production process. And that's why, you know, Mises' his argument goes as follows. Without private property and the means of production, right, there's not going to be a market for the goods, for the means of production, right, for the capital goods. Without a market for the means of production, there's going to be any monetary prices established for the means of production. And without monetary prices, there's no way to, as relative scarcity indicators, there's no way to determine whether or not you should use that good or that good on the investment project. And so waste gets built into the system, which by definition destroys the ability of the system to rationalize production and lead to the burst of productivity, which would overcome scarcity, which is necessary for us to move from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom, which is the non-alienated, non-exploitive state. So if, to, to take a, um, a modern example um, that's especially relevant for the, the politics of socialism now, uh, health care. So... Healthcare. My dad's a doctor. His both of my dad's parents were doctors, so I, I, I'm. You know the doctor gig. I can't. I, I know what it's like to be to be uh, around doctors. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Um, but I, I care about it a lot. It's, it's always been a passion of mine, concern about the healthcare system, just because of the family. And okay, so all right, so you go into a hospital and you got all these machines, and um, and you've got all these procedures and you've got all this this these capital goods, right, that, that go into the provision of medicine. And you've got millions of people with lots of different um, problems, lots of different ailments, 
And how are we supposed to determine how many MRI machines should be in any particular place at any particular time? Right. And but even below the surface of that, right? So it's like so so how sh will we determine the components that are used to build the MRI machines that we don't quite know how many of which we'll need in any particular town in any particular time. Yep. And, and so on and so forth, all the way right down to, all right, I'm in a, I'm in an iron town and I, or, you know, we're, 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 I'm in a mining town in Western Pennsylvania. Where am I going to ship this iron ore too like uh, who's going to decide that for me and i'm just talking about one particular device in one industry that in and of itself has hundreds and hundreds and th thousands of components that are all made all over the place so how do you do that right is that is that a, is that kind of a way to think about totally i i wrote a paper early on in my career which was about uh the veteran administration hospitals and the interaction between the political lobby and interest groups and the economic calculation of the use of medical supplies. So in the veteran, which is also a planned economy, the, the Veterans Administration, right? And if you think about it, uh, what was going on was that the vets were a very uh, powerful interest group after World War II. Um, and then, in, and then okay, again with the Vietnam War, but this, this, you know, and so one of the things is, is that when you're a vet and you first come out and you're very active involved, what you need is you need acute care bed units, right? Cause that's going to be the thing that you're going to suffer from. But when you get older, you need to have chronic care, uh, you know, bed units, right? You know, you're going to, you're infirm, you have, uh, you know, um, you don't need it's not for a heart attack it's not for you know a broken hip or whatever it's actually for you know alzheimer's or some other age old diabetes treatments or whatever right right cancer and, yeah cancer these things and so you you know so you have acute care units which are very expensive right and then you have the chronic care units and one of the things that you have is then you know how how do you estimate you know how many of those units should i have and without an open market bidding or whatever, you're like sort of picking those and they're and they're subject to a lot of times political whim. And if the most loud political unit is the one that wants the acute care units, you end up by having more acute care units. But then in reality, you get more chronic care patients. So you have chronic care patients now employed in the acute care units. Right. Which means the acute care unit can't be used to take care of acute cases. And yet it's way more expensive than the chronic care unit. Right. And so th these are all the calculations that need to go on in the market all the time. And when we take them out of the market, we don't make those decisions based on economic criteria. We make them based on political criteria. Now, uh, isn't and this might not be explicitly Marxist, but isn't the fundamental uh, uh, like the intuitive response to this allocation based on price to say, well, when you say allocation based on price, what you're really saying is allocation based on wealth. So if I am a rich professor, I get the par close parking space. And if I'm a poor student, I get the f distant market. I get the, get the distant space. If I'm a rich patient, I get the, the, the great intensive care unit that takes care of me. And if I'm a poor person, I come in and I wait in the ER until I drop dead. Uh, I mean, look, uh, again, this is uh, there's a difference between the aesthetic of things, the normative 
a benchmark of how we can try to do better as society and then kind of the hard-nosed reality of things. So to economists, you know, we make this distinction between the willingness to pay and the ability to pay. And for uh, uh, many issues, we just go on the idea of willingness to pay. What we're trying to do is reveal preferences about uh, uh, goods and services. And one of the ways to get that is to have an abstract, right, an auction to bid for how much you're willing to pay for that. And if you don't have, I mean, there's a distinction in economics between effective demand and notional demand. If I don't have, I might have a notional demand to have a Mercedes Benz, but my effective demand is to have a Toyota, right? <laughs> right. And, and isn't it sad that I don't have a Mercedes Benz? <laughs> you know, no, because I don't have the willing, I don't have the ability to pay. So therefore my willingness to pay is constrained not by my notional demands, but by my effective demands. Now, some people want to say there's deeper injustice that led to those things. That may be true, and we could have a conversation about that, but that doesn't change the basic systematic examination that's associated right with how it is that some goods get valued and in the possession of other people. So you always have to think in terms of you know the pattern of resource ownership, the role that prices play in uh, guiding production and the role that profit plays in luring uh, activity and the way that loss plays in disciplining activity. And all of that goes together to be able to try to match the revelation of preferences with the pattern of ownership in the economy. And when we try to say that we're not going to allow that to take place, that's okay. But now tell me what the alternative is going to be. And so we're going to choose to allocate based on something other than the willingness to pay. Well, we end up by picking other criteria like who's in line, right? Or who who do you know? Who do you know, right? And so then you have to do the comparison thing of of the institutional comparison about what does it mean? You know, you could say based on, you know, ethnicity. I mean, think about the different rationing systems throughout human history, right, that have been used other than the price system. Like this is an important lesson that I think, you know, a lot of people don't get. I get it again that like we don't live in in that same world today or don't we? I don't know. Look at the conversation that's going on about uh, university admissions. Right. Uh, You know, is it is is our university admissions where it's not a pure meritocracy? You know, the whole debate that's going on at Harvard or whatever. Right. Right. We have two. uh, the, The short is. We got too many Asians. They're too smart. We got to have less Asians. And and so is that a? Are we allocating spots based on right? Are we allocating spots on meritocracy, or are we arguing on something else? Right. It's sort of a at some level that that and we can get to. I'd like to get to this before we wrap up our conversation. Is this sort of rejection of 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 equality, a kind of return to really superficial tribalism? that seems to be wrapped up in this stuff. This is the real thing going back to your earlier conversation about liberalism. So that earlier liberal doctrine, however imperfectly applied in reality, right? So no one's going to say it was perfectly applied in the United States or anything like that. But the aspiration that was behind that liberalism was to overcome the oppression that was due to religious dogma, the oppression that was due to ethnicity, and the, the oppression due to the divine right of kings, uh, the oppression 
uh, due to um, I already mentioned religion rights or like you know of of uh, so you could move between places you could you were treated as an equal uh, with one another so we were one another's equal that was the ideal um, and that and so liberalism was all about overcoming the oppression that's associated with identity. It didn't deny that, you know, people have, like you mentioned before, that you were Italian, right? And and so, you know, it's not saying, oh, you can't have that heritage or you can't have that language or whatever, but it was it was to, for, you know, parts of the U.S. history, people might have discriminated against Italians, right? It used to be a, a, people complained that, you know, you couldn't get things because you had a vowel in your name, right? Well, it's, I mean, it, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the single largest lynching in all of American history was actually of Italian-Americans in uh in new orleans yeah it's very it got it got pretty it got pretty real for italians uh. and so you think about those things um and so it's not liberalism doesn't say that people can't identify and feel strong heritage for their language for their history for their you know their cultural products but their whole point is to not have it be the thing that limits because where the experience in life is in this cosmopolitanism. So like Mises is very clear about this in, in his 27 book, you know, he argues that the liberal is a cosmopolitan. That is so shocking to me today because there's like this new emphasis on trying to not get beyond our identities or merge our identities, but to insist that our identities are the most important thing and they we should get privileges based on the various different identities. What I, I want to spend our last bit of time together talking about this. So to sort of summarize, if you will. Well, by the way, that wouldn't be Marx either. You know, Marx was was about all the Marx in this sense is, is consistent with the liberal project of it's a project for humanity in general. I went to a fantastic exhibit at the Tate in London, which was called Red, uh, Red Star over Russia, I think. It was the propaganda film, uh, propaganda art, uh, prop art that was used in the Soviet Union in the 20s to promote like the revolution as they spread across. And it, it, it's very much a universalistic project. It's not a kind of tribal project. And so that's important to keep in mind too. Like, so what's going on today is a little different. I, again, I, I don't wanna sound crazy. So, uh, but think about what happens when you have socialism and you combine it with a ethnic tribalism what actually did we call that in the 20th century? Yeah, national socialism. <laughs> yes. And that's a lot different from the international liberalism uh, that uh, – and, and keep in mind, you know, Mises and Hayek and Robbins and other liberals of the mid-20th century, you know, their witnessing of this horror in the first half of the 20th century, they identified it with the odious racial doctrines that they wanted to agitate against. And so laissez-faire, the resurgence of laissez-faire liberalism in the second half of the 20th century is, again, a reaction against the tribalism of odious religious doc, uh, odious ethnic doctrines, which is uh, the reason why, for example, Mises, you know, here's a guy who had to escape from Europe, you know, because for his life, you know, first from Vienna to Geneva and then from Geneva back to the United States. You know, he had to get get out of Dodge because otherwise he was a Jew threatened with his life. You know, that he was going to lose his life. And so the idea that somehow Mises, which gets perpetrated sometimes by 
people on the left that Mises somehow is a apologist for you know fascism or whatever is just absurd. It's it's a it's a insulting to a man whose life was threatened and and by this and and simply an absurd intellectual position to hold. And so this is why this this kind of conversation that you want to have in the broader educational world is so important because the conversation is is distorted in a serious way. I do believe, I remember seeing somewhere that it was, in one of his writings, Mises, in a sense, credits fascism with, I suppose you could say, keeping communism from spreading even farther than it had. Um, is that is that am I remember that correctly? So that was that was published in 1927. Oh, so that's before the rise of the of the of Nazi Germany. Yes, and it's and it's, in terms of the the Holocaust. Right. It's so it's published in 1927. It's written, uh, you know, before that because you know you don't publish books the same year that you get they, you don't publish books the same year you wrote them. Um, he's referring specifically to in Italy, and how the fascists have have sort of forestalled the advancement of the Marxist destructionism there. But the next paragraph is a criticism of fascism. You know, so recently, I'll tell you another thing. I mean, I, I recently was at a conference and someone brought up an issue about Mises and him discussing the, the primitive mind and Levy Brule's work and trying to they got confused, the person reading it, because they thought Mises was himself talking about the primitive mind. But Mises' whole point, because remember, he's not a polylogist, <laughs> so there is no primitive mind, right? That it, That's what his critic was saying, or the person he was criticizing. He was actually trying to argue, no, 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 that's nonsense to think like that. The, 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 the peasant uh, in the past was just as rational as the accountant today, right? They just had a different context within which they were engaged in their rational activity. But the person was dead set on trying to say, oh, look, Mises believes in in that savages, you know, were incapable of thinking rationally. And it's like, that's not his argument. Could you just read the text? <laughs> but in this day and age, it's very hard to get people to read the text because they want to believe certain things, right? They want to believe that people that disagree with them are evil and stupid. They don't want to wrestle with the idea that someone could be of kind heart and good uh, intentions and yet also really smart but disagree with them. Well, it's 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 the iron, uh, ironic thing, it sounds like, is that Mises was far less a fan of fascism than Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> or his brain trust. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Roxwell <laughs> Tev. Yeah. Who was who was who were explicitly um, celebratory of the of the fascist, uh, the early fascist regimes yeah. like Mussolini. Yeah. Uh, and and model and modeled their programs after them in in so many right. ways. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is so a, a very calm treatment of this. So obviously, you know, the really classic treatment of this is John Flynn's "As We Go Marching," but uh, a calm. Uh, you know, assessment of this is Don Lavoie's discussion in National Economic Planning, What is Left, uh, where he does the Reconstruction uh, Finance Corporation and studies, you know, the implications of that. But also, of course, you got, you know, look at Robert Higgs's work um, on this. It's it's very good about, uh, you know, what what these 
he captures in essence what the policies were about in their interactions. Yeah. So you just use this term polylogism. I want to understand something uh, about our modern identity politics and to what extent it has its roots in Marx. So at one level, you see this class struggle. Marx lays out the march of history as this dialectic that's continually between oppressors and oppressed classes. And he sort of says that the industrial capitalism basically created a, like a, a kind of new ultimate meta version of past class warfare because now we have basically two classes the bourgeoisie and the proletariat and that's everybody we used to have serfs and feudal lords and kings and 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 their and their um subjects and all these other inter coexisting interrelated classes in constant struggle and now we've just got the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and 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 that existence is marked by that is that a you would you say that's a fair kind of um summation of marx's class struggle framework well definitely i mean that's a good summary of the class struggle framework the question is whether or not the solution to that is to shore up the identity or find commonality so remember that the old uh, appeal of you know uh, liberty equality and and uh, fraternity or or you know solidarity um, these are for the workers to unite right not to pit themselves against one another on different things so they find common ground it's a it's again it's a universalistic claim not a not a particular claim and i think that's one of the real problems so marx could have as an unattended undesirable consequence tribalism but it certainly wasn't a desired outcome of his position um, though his position, this is where it gets funky, his position might ultimately re reside from moral intuitions, which emerged in our tribalism. This is Hayek's point about the difference between the intimate order and the extended order, that our evolutionary past is tribal. Right. And we have our moral intuitions, in particular, our moral intuitions about sharing and other kinds of norms all come from that tribal past, whereas our moral demands of living in the great society require us to adopt different mores that so our moral intuitions cut against our moral demands and it may be that marx's criticism of capitalism fits with those moral intuitions but right it's it's the exploitation it's the alienation and then you know the mechanics of going through the monopoly and the business cycles and state monopoly capitalism and and imperialism and war and there's enough of empirical overlap to the to the intuition that the uncritical mind just simply accepts without examining and so therefore the tacit presuppositions that people have is that this modern capitalism has thrust this upon us, and this is the world that we live in. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think um, we we grew up in a family. We evolved in small family-like tribes. You know, at, at most a hundred people. You know, there's like Dunbar's number, right? That we can only really hold like 150 people in our head at any given time, something like that. And so there's a set of uh, things that we expect and and ways of behavior that apply to that level, that sort of size. Um, I don't charge my son prices. I, if he's, I don't, I don't, uh, 
you know, I, 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 from each to his uh, ability to each to his means is how you run yeah, yeah. your family right. if you're doing it if you're doing it right. And then we, that's how that's how we evolved. That's how we are acculturated. That's how we think. That's what feels right in our gut. That's the truthy moral intuition. And then when we look out there in the world and be like, well. So I just saw my my buddy get fired because he wasn't doing a, he was struggling at his job. I mean, I would never I wouldn't fire my kid if he was struggling at school. I'd double down on him. Right. Well, that boss is obviously some kind of exploitative jerk. And and so you, you kind of the, that your gut doesn't line up well with the macro cosm as Hayek said. But I, I there's something that in the Mises in his book Socialism that Mises he pushes back on this oppressor oppressed framework sure he does it he sees it as a he sees society much more and so does hayek i mean it it, it right it, it, but they they see it much more as the possibility this is the extended order idea your your cosmos as you were just talking about kind of thing right your your and uh uh but they see that as a society of mutually beneficial exchange rather than as conflicts I think Mises even, I mean, he makes a strong, he basically says, look, when we, what the market system does, what capitalism does is it puts us in the position of, in, of having to improve our, our own lot by providing for someone else. And so we have to actually serve other people to get the things we need. And this is uh, far from creating perpetual conflict. It's the exact opposite that I, you know, if, if I'm, Pack if you know, there's this great Coca-Cola ad um, uh, that a lot of people probably look at and think is cheesy, but I think is wonderful. Where they place this these two Coca-Cola um, like video jukeboxes, one in Pakistan and one in India, and these you know obviously India and Pakistan was divided at the point of independence and have been at you know rivals and bloody rivals at some at many points throughout their history, and. And so you see they, you know, and so these uh, these folks are seeing each other um, through the Coca-Cola like video chat basically and start to dance and and interact. And, and like the interaction point there of the video chat is kind of silly. But the reality is, is that actually making and producing Coca-Cola and selling it to each other is um, is is a process of actually getting to know that, oh, I just thought you're a horrible Indian um, you're a horrible Hindu or you're a horrible Muslim and now I see, oh, you're a person and you love your family and you're just like me and you're just trying to do the right thing for yourself. And and so commerce doesn't create perpetual conflict but brings people together. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I can wax about this because I believe it. I think Mises is right. But I do think it's almost as important a criticism of Marx as the technical impossibility of Marx's vision because of because of the inability to make the trillions of decisions that are necessary for the economy to actually be modern yeah. and, and we can we can end our conversation on this because this it's been a marathon Pete and I appreciate you taking the time with well, me well I appreciate you I I fully cognizant of the idea that I'm not a not the best interviewee but I, I I'll tell you a, a funny story that when I when social media things first started uh, my my colleague Tyler Cowan was one of the first movers in it, and so he kept on doing the virtues of blogging, and so I got involved in blogging, and I wrote to him uh, not soon after because I basically for my blog I kind of wrote 
you know, mini little articles. <laughs> I remember your book. So this was the, it was, uh, was the, the calculation problem or what was your book? It's, it's, I still have it. It's called the coordination problem. But before that, it was called, it was called the Austrian economist. And uh, I wrote to Tyler and I said, uh, I said, Tyler, I don't really understand this blogging thing. And he wrote back just one sentence. He says, uh, he goes, uh, there's returns to pithiness. And I wrote back and I said, I don't understand. And he wrote back precisely. <laughs> so I understand that there's uh, and, and I'm very deep in the weeds in these things. And so sometimes I think I'm giving an explanation and I might not be. So I apologize to you. I do think these socialism um, issues are at the core of our discourse that must be must be taking place. I think it's very sad that we live in a world now where uh, in, even in Russia, the students, uh, some very high percentage of students in college don't even know what the gulag really was, um, let alone the kids in our uh, colleges that are even farther removed from uh, these. And so I think a large part of explaining, not explaining first the depth of the depravity of that social experiment, and then second, what are the analytical reasons why it's not just bad luck it's not just oh joseph stalin got in control right it's not just that um you know uh, mao got in control it's that there's systematic logical reasons why that outcome no one nothing in history is inevitable but that the all the the lines push in that direction so that uh and it's it, it's not a, a a bug it's a feature of the system. And so what I like to say, going back to our earlier argument about morality is that, you know, it's one of the most important lessons to get across to young people is that communism um, didn't fail because humanity failed to live up to it. It failed because communism fails to live up to the demands of humanity. And, and that's because it can't generate a functioning economic system. And we really need to stress this point and get this point across because so many people just don't recognize that fundamental point. It is a bizarre thing of our uh, modern time, right? Because it's not like we ran this uh, experiment in one place with one particular history. So it's you've got the Soviet Union who spanned a large portion of the globe, but then separately you had Maoist China, you, have, you had uh, Pol Pot, Cambodia, Castro, and uh, every every continent. You've got Zimbabwe, and most of the African states had adopted Marxist Marxist uh, ideologies in in varying flavors. Every continent, every conceivable culture, every variety of historical context where where this was really tried. So I'm older than you, but think about. I don't know if you, I'm I, I'm betting that you've seen this movie, but it was one of the really powerful movies emotionally to see when I was a young kid becoming an adult. And that's the killing fields. And that killing fields is about what went on in Cambodia. And the problem was it's a great, it's an unbelievable movie. It's, it's very moving and I recommend it to everyone to see, but they don't really explain why it is that the Khmer Rouge did what they did or what the Khmer Rouge means. They just had, you know, here's this, 
guy who was working with this journalist who got stuck behind after the fall and he had to survive the camps and do all stuff like that. And, you know, and then he eventually escapes and gets to the West. But you have to understand why they were doing what they were doing. It wasn't just random evil. It's systematic evil that's connected to the ideology. And that's so hard to capture in uh, artistic form, right, to people. Yes. And and yet that they have to that and that's and unfortunately, I mean, this is I know, again, I'm rambling a lot. But but, you know, like when I don't agree with everything in Steven Pinker's book. Okay, so don't get me wrong. But if you ask me, what are the two books that I would want? my son, if he was just graduating from high school and going to college or in college to read over the last year, it would have been Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now and Hans Reisling's Factfulness. And it's not because, as you know, I'm like some kind of data monkey or anything like that, right? It's because I actually believe that reason and evidence should have priority over outrage and emotion we're kind of living through a period of time where outrage and emotion have, you know, been the default. And so then the question is, okay, so we're there now. So what are you outraged about? I think we should be listening to these young kids, not dismissing them and not telling them to grow up. Like that's the wrong, wrong thing to do. It's like, okay, what are you outraged about? What are you so frustrated with and listen to it and then try to explain to them the institutional reasons why their frustration and their outrage has meaning, why it actually exists. And I think they'll find out it's not because people pay prices to their grocery store to get a gallon of milk and say thank you when you know they get their milk from the grocer, right? It has to do with these giant entities of public predation, which empower people to lord over other people. And that's not the market setting. That's the antithesis of the market. And so we need to be very clear here about, you know, what actually is the alternative system that people could envision about how the world could be organized in cooperation with one another and the beauty of the division of labor and and uh, and, and the individual entrepreneur and the creativity of that versus the idea of this crony system that you know, could come in and get special privileges and uh, block some groups at the expense of other groups and all of that, and that whether or not their solution to the problem augments that or dissipates that. And I think that's where systematic analysis is necessary to augment or give meaning actually to, and so, or sorry, the wrong word, give substance to our outrage and to our emotions. I think the thing that threatens that more than anything else today is the notion that um, logic, uh, that there's multiple logics, that there's, that, and, and that we can't actually, we, we can't trust or shouldn't even bother to listen to the views of people who have an identity that's not, um, uh, you know, that's not uh, uh, sufficiently more, more, you know, uh, morally righteous in some sense. So if you're a, you know, if you're in a, you know, this notion of whether it's white privilege or, 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 or intersectionality, it seems like the under, there's this dismissal of the, of the need to engage other people 
and I do I I don't know if this comes from Marx, but it seems that this notion of sort of bourgeois logic versus other logic, and uh, the way it even manifested in the Soviet Union with a desire to have communist science and communist ag agronomy and you know, is this some is this embedded in Marx or is this some of his followers? You know, I hear these ideas. This I, the, today's identity politics called neo-Marxist, like Jordan Peterson likes to say that that this is a neo-Marxist, and, and he points to these postmodern philosophers like Derrida. Uh, but is this in Marx or is this is that is it unfair to put to to lay this like tribal identity? logic at the foot of Marx in, 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 in any sense. I, I don't know enough about, you know, what Jordan Peterson is all about to comment on the specific chain of connections that he makes. I, I think that there's a big difference between postmodernism and deconstructionism. Um, so I would make a different distinction between that, but that's like too fine of a distinction for the conversation we're having at the moment. And uh, during the Jordan Peterson phenomena, by the way, I, I went out and I actually looked up his stuff and I got like his his book and everything like that. And and so I'm not going to join in on the crowd that says like he's a hack or whatever like that. I mean, he's a he's a tenured professor at at uh University of Toronto that's, you know, written some very interesting things over the years and, and whatnot. And um, I don't know if that gives him license to talk about everything in the world or, or to get, you know, or that very common sense advice that like my grandfather would have gave me would have been, you know, a reason to get like, you know, a million viewers on, on YouTube or whatever. But um, the issue that I think is, I'm not sure that Marx himself in his writings can give rise to what's going on, but I think a certain form of cultural Marxism can. And I think if you do critical genealogies, now I'm talking the language of, of the left, uh, if I do critical genealogies in the, in the line of Foucault, uh, in Foucault's book, he has a great line there where he talks in the book Power and Knowledge. He has a great uh, uh, line there. He says, um, I don't look to condemn Marx in advance for the gulag. And I don't look to excuse Marx in advance to the gulag, but the critical thinker, right, must examine Marx's text to, and ask the question, what could possibly give rise to the gulag from those texts? And I think that's a very kind of useful exercise to do. And one of those giving rise is this idea of polylogism, because it doesn't have a universal logic uh, that would be a stopgap against certain types of claims. So you'd have epistemic claims that are associated only with particular groups and that only that group has access to it and only that group is able to, um, uh, to, to work with it. You know, no one else would be able to have, there's no intergroup um, assessment possible, right? I mean, I, I think that the thing that's scary to me about... I don't know how core that is to Marx, but to cultural Marxism, it kind of was, yeah. And so what is this term, cultural Marxism? Because, I mean, I, I think the thing is the politics of today... It's a little too amorphous, actually. Yeah, these things are all wrapped up together. So we have at the same time uh, the, 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 same, the same sort of... You will hear in the same breath... Um, 
a desire for democratic socialism or um, uh, a social, a kind of Marx, Marx flavored economic criticism of America. And, and that tends to go hand in hand with uh, this hyper identity politics that says that, you know, the, the entire structure of, of our political concerns must be on the basis of oppressor and oppressed classes. And that if you're one of the fortunate classes and, and these classes are literally skin deep, well, then I don't need to listen to you. You have nothing to contribute sit down and shut up. It's not your turn anymore. It rhymes with the way Marx talks about the bourgeois and the proletariat in his writings, but, and, and I hear this term cultural Marxism. They might not. And, and, and it, I think cultural Marxism has more to do with univer the universities. Uh, you know, universities are a weird beast and we occupy it. So we tend to over talk about them. So the question is how big a influence the universities have and society as a whole? They might, because we're also in the field of intellectual work, you and I and, you know, Jordan Peterson and everyone else, right? This is, we're in intellectual work as opposed to, you know, other types of work. And so this is who we interact with, this is how we talk to. And um, and so we might have a, a particularly unusual view about how the world is organized. And uh, maybe we need to, um, you know, get out more. I mean, you know. <laughs> Um, but at the same time, we also have this idea that comes from Hayek and intellectuals and socialism, which I think a lot of people – I think this actually will resonate with you. I've never tried this out on you, so I don't know. But I think a lot of people in – roughly in the kind of libertarian movement kind of thing misunderstood the um, uh, the, the, the intellectuals and socialism essay. Because they read it and it says this issue about these uh, certain traders and ideas, journalists, artists, filmmakers, novelists. And then they're like, oh, if only we could have libertarian journalists and libertarian filmmakers and libertarian you know, artists or whatever. But in many ways, if you actually were a libertarian artist, a libertarian journalist or a – a libertarian filmmaker, you'd probably be a really bad filmmaker, <laughs> journalist, and what what you need to be is an excellent filmmaker. That's what you should aspire. You should be an excellent journalist. You should be an excellent artist. What the socialists did that was so well in the period of time from uh, you know Marx until the time Hayek was writing was they controlled the tacit presuppositions of the intellectual class. So that if I – they captured that aesthetic for them, right? They gave them that aesthetic. This is why I was bringing it up. And so as a result, in order for me to be a um, an artist that captures the zeitgeist of a period, I'm not trying to be a socialist filmmaker, but my film is socialistic because that's the zeitgeist. And I'm like capturing the moment, right? And the same thing with a journalist or saying with the way they spin it. These they they don't have it's not like a framework that's subject to refutation because it's a framework that was adopted tacitly by them about what it just when they look out in the world. The simplest way to think about it is when they look out in the world, they see it as a zero sum game. So capitalism is a zero sum game. They would like it to be more of a cooperative game, but they see capitalism as winners and losers. And to us, like market people, I can't tell you why we think like this, but when we see capitalism, we see it as win-win. 
Like I said before, when I go to the grocery store and buy my gallon of milk and I pay a person, not a machine, <laughs> when that comes around, I say, thanks, have a nice day. And they say, thanks, have a nice day. Right? We both like went back and forth. We both say thank you at the end of the exchange because they prefer to get my money. I prefer to have my milk, right? And we have a mutually beneficial exchange. That's not a zero sum. That's a win-win. And I see all kinds of things in society as win-win, potential win-wins, uh, not win-lose. And yet other people, our president, for example, you know, when he thinks about things, the art of the deal for him is I win, you lose. Right. It's uh, yeah, we have to win. Tra the trade wars can't be won. Yeah. I want to I want to give you my take on uh, on the this artist question, because I'm a big fan of that that paper, uh, the, the, uh, the intellectuals and socialism. And I also like to think of myself as a as a decent artist. I uh, I actually think there's something that Hayek missed in that paper, at least in so far as it's the you enunciated this notion that, you know, the, the the socialist or the Marxist mentality kind of became like the the backdrop for all these industries. I, I think that um, stories necessarily are about individual people facing struggles and obstacles and how those people overcome them reveals the nature of who they are and what we care about with a story is actually who someone is like what their intentions are what kind of person they are and that is i mean that's what makes a great movie right it's like uh we we care that han solo goes from being um, sort of a, like a kind of rascal that's, you know, to a hero. just sort of a transactional guy to actually being someone willing to make sacrifices for others. We care that um, when, you know, that uh, we care that somebody's doing things for the right reasons and, and are a lot, you know, in the most sort of vague and complex, when the most sort of morally ambiguous stories, uh, the difference between the good guy and the bad guy often, often just boils down not to their, not to their ends, not to their means or their ends, but on their motivation. I mean, that's what we say about actors, right? Like, what's your motivation? And so I actually think that um, the I think that narrative has a Marxian bias in a very structural, fundamental sense. And I think it's the same. I think it is, and I think the reason for that might be, the reason for that might be the same reason that Hayek points out that we have our moral intuitions are tribal. They're they're rooted in it, the individual struggles and that, that that come about in very small groups like the family or the tiny tribe. It's just who we are. We like the cave paint from cave paintings till now. Storytelling that gets us and really grips us is very personal and very much about personal struggle. And so I do think that there's, you know, there's cultural biases and there's groupthink and urban centers are going to be tend to be left. And for whatever reason, the modern political left is more socialistic instead of being classical liberal. Right. I mean, if you know, it, it, to me, that's totally weird. I mean, it, to, if you're a free thinker, you know, there's nothing more free than markets. There's nothing more 
opposed to freedom than having the bullies and the and the social climbers in high school telling you what to do, which is what politics is. It's like, oh, you remember that kid in high school that all he cared about was his popularity? <laughs> well, that's po- that's the president. All right. <laughs> you want him to tell you how to live your life? Okay, I don't know why you think that's freedom, but um. You know, I, I, I'm being a little uh, playful there, but I mean, I do think at some level, there's just this like transposed morality that gets just scrambled at the level of politics, and I think it's because it's very hard for people to grapple with things at this systems level that like Mises does and like you do in your work. We grapple with things at the narrative level, and 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 there's just a lot of fallacies that that brings up when you try to apply that sort of methodology to complex systems like society and like the and like economics yeah see i so that's a that's a very jonathan height type reading okay and what you're just talking about and i have really no uh grounds to sort of counter it except i wonder what the upshot of it is because um i so i i agree when i teach economics right what I try to do is I try to present the material in a way that actually resonates with the students so that they would see themselves as behaving in the way that I'm describing the abstract interaction to behave if they were found themselves in that same situation. So that's why I tried to stress this idea of the logic of choice and the logic of the situation. So I think one of the problems in the in the presentation of economics is we stopped giving a lot of attention to the institutional background. I'll come back to why this matters for the analysis of socialism in a minute. So we the logic of choice can be presented in very abstract form and very mathematical form in some presentations. So forget the nuanced debates right now in economics about methodology. Just go with you know, the sort of way economics has evolved. Um, But nevertheless, even there for us to do that kind of project, we had to have certain institutional environments, which we treated as background givens. But once it was put into the background, it could easily be forgotten. So then we thought we could do that same decision calculus in environments that were different than that environment that was the background. And so when we force ourselves to do the logic of the situation, that forces us to explain how the game has changed because the institutional rules of the game have changed. So think about this way. To be good in rugby, to have a a good play in rugby would be different than to have a good play in football, right? Uh, When I was in New Zealand – I went and saw a rugby match and uh, they took me to a rugby match and I looked puzzled, I guess. And my host turned to me at one point. He says, you look a little puzzled. What's going on? I said, well, why aren't they blocking? Like, why do they keep throwing laterals rather than block, you know, and run? (laughs) And he said, well, that's against the rules. They're not allowed to do that. That's why they have to keep throwing it outside. And I said, oh, and once I understood that, now I, I saw the logic in the game, like what they were doing. At the end of the game, he told me, you know, they have a they play 11s and then they play this tournament, I think called sevens or eights where they only have seven or eight on a side rather than 11. And the Americans came over to play and the, and New Zealand's, you know, king of rugby or whatever. And so the Americans were getting destroyed. It was like, you know, 50 point difference or whatever. And so they stepped back at, at one point and they sent the guy down the field and they actually threw a forward pass 
you know, which isn't allowed in rugby. And so they threw a pass. The guy caught it and, and ran for a touchdown. This wasn't at the game I was watching. My host was telling me. And he said the crowd all cheered him on because they did that. But that's see, that game's different than the game that's playing rugby. And so the question is, is that what are the various different institutions that are required in order for us to be able to play the game that has its own internal logic? So socialism tried to achieve the same material outputs that were being achieved under those rules of capitalism, of private ownership, of profit and loss accounting, and 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 prices, private property, prices, and profit and loss accounting. Now what they're going to do is they're going to abolish private property. They're going to have administered shadow prices, and they're going to abolish profit and loss. And they're just going to substitute in what they call trial and error methods, right? And so, or material balances or what other mechanism they, they think they come in. Well, does that mechanism generate the same game or is it like rugby versus, you know, football, right? And so can you look at like those different kind of games? And so to me, I think that what we need to do is be able to analyze this logic of the situation. And that means that we have to bridge the gap between the motivations of the individual so so rather than focusing on different players produce different games, instead focus on same players, different rules produce different games. And moving from that issue of motivation to rules, that's really, really difficult to get people to buy into. And so that's where the real task of the art of trying to teach economics to people comes in. Does that make any sense? It does, Pete. And uh, I think with that, I want to thank you for taking all this time with me today. John, I love talking to you. I love what you do. Uh, I've told you this before. I think that what you did with that rap video, but even I'm the nerd, right? So even as a teacher, so not only the rap videos, but the resources that you made available on economic stories, they were phenomenally important resources. And I, I hope that 100,000 of your millions of viewers at least looked at the resources, because if they did that and they had that availability, they would have a much better understanding of why we had the problems that we have and why we haven't fixed them yet. Well, thanks a lot, Pete. I really appreciate it. It was, it was great fun what you did, but it's also a fantastic economic tool. Thanks for listening to the Emergent Order podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again and speak to you next time.